welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Neill. I'm a Canadian expat living in Phuket, Thailand, and Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company. Our intentions of this podcast is to connect with people living on the island and share their stories with you. This is episode 15 with Anna Kessler. Uh, Anna is a Russian OnlyFans content creator. Um, we met her through the Best of Phuket Girls uh, Instagram account. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing with Anna the ins and outs of Instagram and OnlyFans and kind of how that all came together. Um, we believe she's going to have some great insight. Her account on Instagram has been gr- rapidly growing from zero, pretty much zero followers about three months ago. And I think now she's surpassed 10,000 or 15,000 followers. We're here with uh, John Daly, the co-founder of Soy Dog Foundation. So first, thank you, John, for being with us today. It's much appreciated, especially out of your busy day. And I told John we kind of wanted to jump into a more uh, important topic, especially while we're fresh in the podcast. And we're going to start discussing right away about the Uling um Yuling? Fe- Yuling. Yeah, the Yuling Festival. Yuling yeah. Festival, yeah. Okay, well, the Yuling Festival, um, or Dog Meat Festival as it's become known, actually started as a lychee festival. And you have to bear in mind that Yuling is uh, it's a big city and it's in one of these southern provinces of China where you have uh, dog meat is prevalent in that uh, those three provinces and also one in the northeast. Now, it was dwindling a bit, so the local dog traders decided, dog meat traders decided to try and increase sales by holding this festival um, in July uh, every year. How long has it been going on for? Not that long. It's a dog meat festival, and I have to tell you now, it doesn't exist anymore as such. Mm. So it ended, it started, well, it was within, I lose track of time these days, certainly within the last 10 years. Prior to that, it was a lychee festival. and obviously it brought, the very fact that it was called a dog meat festival uh, brought it quite a lot of notor- notoriety in the in the West and huge amounts of protests, etc. Um, can I just... Oh, it's your phone, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Is that my phone? Yeah. Is it my phone? I thought I'd switched it off. Sorry, just a minute. Let me switch this off. It's okay. For us, it's fine. We're can you... Uh, yeah, it hooks yeah. me off when it's ding, ding, ding. So it's yeah. turned. To, I've, I put it on airplane mode, but it still gets messages through, uh, and it okay. will go emails and be continued. Oh, don't worry. No Sorry about that. Even, so I'll just. Do you want me to take that back? No. So I. Th- no, it's fine. You can continue. We can keep, we can you can move on. With it, yeah. Yeah. So we, you're talking about uh, so the Yuling Festival, and I, I actually thought it's been around for hundreds of years. No. That was my understanding. No. Okay. I mean, eating dog meat across Asia is relatively. Uh, recent in terms of, if you like, mass consumption. What you've got to remember is, I mean, in, in Vietnam, for example, which is the second biggest consumer in the world after China, it didn't, if you look at the history of the American, what they call the American War, the Vietnam War, there's no record at all in the south of Vietnam of anything regarding towards dog meat. It was actually introduced by Chinese military advisors. And we've obviously, when you get uh, during the war, the shortages of food, people will eat anything, doesn't matter what society you come from. And so dogs were a plentiful supply of, again, of extra meat. And that's how it developed. It's been practiced for hundreds of years by hill tribes, nomadic hill tribes, who even, you know, spread into Thailand as well, in the far north, in Chiang Rai area. 
Yes. And they have practiced eating dogs just as they practice eating other animals that followed them as they moved around. Is that just because food is scarce, scarce when you're in these areas? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's but also because you've got, you know, there was, there was no sort of population control, so you've got dogs breeding and whatever and puppies. You get excess animals, and, yeah, it's it's food, so they would kill them and to, for eating food. Um, and it did develop that they'd started then to kill dogs for particular festivals and and gradually these sort of beliefs crept in about dog meat being increasing masculine virility and all the rest and of it. And this has been happening in these hill tribes, are you talking thousands of years? or? Uh, well, certainly, I'm sure it's documented how far back it yeah. goes, but certainly there's, for the last you know, 300 years there's documented, yeah. document, documenting it yeah. in, in hill tribes. But in terms of it, as these hill tribes, I mean, for example, Chang, Stick to Thailand, Chiang Rai is a good example. As these hill tribes prospered, particularly through the opium uh, trade in the, you know, many years ago, it's, they moved into the cities and towns and took this with them. And so you started to see dog meat restaurants open in places like Chiang Rai and Chiang Mai. Similarly, in the northeast, you had, um, you had refugees from Vietnam, not from the war, but from... Northeast Thailand. Northeast Thailand, yeah. Okay. yeah coming over religious persecution, Catholics, who came and moved into the northeast of Thailand, uh, in particularly in Nakhon Phanom and Sakon Nakhon provinces. And in fact, there's a town in Sakon Nakhon called Ta Rare, which was sort of the capital of the dog meat industry in Thailand, and also the dog skin industry, the tanning industry. Um, and it's an unusual town if you go up there. You'll see there's a Roman Catholic cathedral, and there's a nunnery, and you'll see nuns walking around. It's very Catholic. And this was uh, predominantly Vietnamese who introduced dog meat again into that area of Thailand. Now, is this the industry trying to prosper and, and introducing this new meat to, to you know strictly for uh, you know capital gains and? Yeah, what, you know, yes, exactly. I mean, this is what's this is what's occurred. Obviously, people who trade in it trade in dog meat, like if you're in any business, will yeah. try and advertise their products and try and tell people this is good for you and whatever, because dog meat is not cheap wherever it's consumed. And to, to kind of put a, a stamp on, on the time period, when was this happening in this area where the Vietnamese were introducing dog meat over into North, Northeast Thailand? Oh, this goes back to sort of 20, 30 years ago it started? Because of the Vietnamese War? and, and Well, no, would, this would is, that, be that is, I mean, in terms of exporting mm. dog, dogs from Thailand to Vietnam, I mean, you're talking post-Vietnam War. I mean, the Vietnam War ended what now nearly 50 years ago. Yeah. So you're talking post that. So you're talking in terms of, you know, 20, 30 years ago, this trade that we know of. I mean, when I moved to Thailand, um, I didn't know that existed. And it was only when I saw an article in the Bangkok Post of a photo of a truck loaded with over a 1,000 dogs that had broken down on the side of the road in Laos, saying, you know, 1,000 of these dogs, just explain the picture. I thought, well, God, I never, I never knew that, and so, and it, one of the reasons we called it, in, a, in fact, a documentary film that was made about it, called the Shadow Trade, because ninety, oh, ninety-five percent of Thais didn't even know it was going on. It was quite local to that area northeast of Thailand, even though the the people getting the dogs were travelling through out north and central Thailand, 
acquiring dogs. They used to call them bucket dogs. They'd go into mm. poor villages with their trucks and they would ex- they would literally exchange dogs for plastic buckets and later on often for a, a few baht or whatever. And these yeah. would be excess dogs again, you know, unwanted dogs from villages. And this is how they got them and they would grab them off the so street. So the, tr- the trade was you're, you're, they're getting them from villages, they're yeah. bringing them to this kind of remote northeast Thailand Oh, exactly. One sec, we'll fix that. Northeast Thailand, uh, it's the the city or the province, and trading it to Vietnam. That was the that yeah, was kind of the business model there, and kind of keeping it out of the the uh, you know. Yeah, it was here. illegal even then because it because of the disease laws, the rabies and the anthrax act actually meant that if you want to take a dog or send a dog to Vietnam for any purpose, it has to have a rabies vaccination and paperwork to prove that and to be microchipped. Mm. Now, of course. That costs money, takes time, not happening. The dogs were actually smuggled across the river because, as you know... The Mekong, yeah. The Mekong is the border between Thailand and Laos, not Vietnam, but Laos. So you'd get trucks going to the border and these long-tailed boats were literally... The dogs stuffed into cages. And, I mean, um, if you've ever seen these cages, you would get a cage generally about a metre and a half by 90 cents, you know, a metre wide... And about that high, so, so I mean, we've got examples of them at the shelter. Yeah, show visitors, and they would stuff up to twelve dogs into one of these, you know, average-sized dogs, literally stuffing them in, mm. and then stacking these cages one on top of the other on the backs of trucks. Then they would just slid down the bank uh, onto onto then onto these long-tailed boats. Smoked at night, smoked across the river. Once they get across the river, they were home free and then stacked onto big trucks, like the one I saw in the photo, and then driven for many hours to... So they're taking uh, it through Laos into Vietnam. Into Vietnam. And that was what the tray consisted of. And the reality is, of course, that many of these dogs, particularly in the bottom of these trucks, would die from suffocation. Many, it doesn't matter if a leg was stuck out of these cages, would just be slammed. So you've got many that were... You know, it was in inherently cruel practice from start to finish i mean if you know people argue what's wrong with eating a dog as opposed to a chicken chicken or a a pig or a cow or whatever and it's a valid valid question to ask i mean i could link that there are reasons why i would argue there is a difference but nevertheless um, which I can go into if you want. Yeah, I think that's that but is interesting. We'll do, but yeah. a bit before we get to that, yeah. but bear in mind, even even in countries like Vietnam, there are regulations saying whether they're fully followed. Same same as they are always in Western countries, like including states or Canada, from yeah. where you're from. Slaughterhouses have high standards in terms of how you kill an animal. The ethical practice. The ethical. Whether yeah. it actually happens that way is another matter. Yeah. But that's. By the way, there are at least there is at least some control. What you have to bear in mind is is in no country in Asia, excepting South Korea, is dog meat uh, recognised as, um, as 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 livestock. You know, as meat. There's no laws governing dogs. The in, killing of dogs, the transportation so of anywhere. The in difference between a chicken, a pig, or a dog, they're all considered livestock? Is this what you're saying? They're all considered livestock except dogs. Except dogs. And okay. there are all, in every country in Asia, there are laws uh, stating how you should be transporting, killing, and processing the meat. And in all across the 
doesn't matter which country. There are no laws in any country govern, in step Korea governing dogs. So they can be transported, killed, in any way the slaughterhouse deems oh, okay. fit. So you get these extremely cruel practices to the extent that in some areas in Asia, not all, uh, but in some areas of Asia, it is believed that the if you inflict pain on an animal, it increases the adrenaline. Yes. And the adrenaline increases, improves the texture of the meat. More tender. Well, it, the actual yeah. fact, scientifically, the opposite is true. But nevertheless, the texture, is, again, people believe this. So, again, inflicting pain on um, on, on the dog before it's killed. Often they're you know, killed while they're yeah. still alive, thrown into deferring machines, boiling water, etc., alive. So there are a lot of inhumane practices involved in the killing of dogs. And the transport itself is pretty horrendous. So is that part of it to to for to make this meat? Uh, no, the transport is, is no, no. The transport is just getting as many dogs over yeah. in as Cheap, as you can yeah. cheaply and Saving stuffing them into shipping, yeah. to as small as many as possible into a cage yeah. means more in terms of uh, getting more onto a boat, onto a truck, and so forth. So and is that's the, the was this a massive industry in, between Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam? And is it still, or, or when did that no, all that, change? No, I mean, initially at its peak, uh, going back to sort of 2011 when we were involved in it heavily, started getting involved in it heavily, the Thai Veterinary Medical Association estimated that there were half a million dogs a year in Thailand involved in the dog meat industry. Now, that included um, not only the dogs being shipped to Vietnam, but also dogs being killed locally for their skins uh, and also for the local dog meat trade, both in Tha- you know in the northeast and and they are consuming Thailand. it in Thailand in these provinces. Yeah, and, and also dog was be- was being processed for other purposes, so it would be sold. For example, meatballs. I mean, I don't know if you uh, you may remember there was a case in Europe recently where they discovered horse meat being yeah. sold into meat pies yes. and not being declared. Similar thing in Thailand. You could go and buy meatballs from in Bangkok. And it could be dog meat or part yeah. dog meat. So without it being declared as such. So that was happening. And that would be byproducts often of the skin trade. And the entire, uh, like the population of Thailand has no clue this is going on. This is kind of hidden in, let's, yeah. would you call it the black market at this point? I would call it, yeah, I would say we called it, well, the trade was certainly to Vietnam was a undercover trade. I yeah. mean, but it, although there was a lot of obviously with, you know, you probably appreciate there's a thriving trade not only in dogs at the time but also in wildlife drugs of course yeah and people and obviously there's a huge amount of corruption goes on uh that facilitates it i mean i was up there on one occasion with the local uh mekong river unit from the night of the navy and they they were showing me various places and literally we stumbled across uh crossing as we drove up um towards the river was a guy just leant against a car, got on his phone, and immediately the foot was down on our van as we rocketed down towards the shore because they knew straight away this was warning that was there. It wasn't dogs, it was actually, as we got there, the truck was just pulling away, but it was ice and everything on the side of the yeah. road, and from what they saw, bits of sign, little bits of meat, it was, it was bare parts that they were smuggling across. What was your agenda at that time? Why were it you It was really, we were looking... We were building relationship up with the 
got river police who wanted to see examples of the crossing points that were being used. They knew they knew were being used. And this was in broad daylight. And as we left that area, we could watch them. We followed up river. They were on the other side of the river going up. You could see where they landed. There was a proper building there yeah. where they were unloading. And as we left, you could see other people on the Thai side on every road who were obviously, and they pointed, of, to that, that industry. Yeah, they pointed out to me. Part of that industry. Yeah, they pointed out to this big estate <clears throat> which was guarded with gates and everything, owned by one of the principal's smugglers. Yeah. And they pointed out to me, 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 and they black market industries, you know, and trying to protect what's going on, especially for the, the dog side. Did you ever feel threatened or scared with your life? No, I wouldn't say, I mean, I did used to keep my eyes open for motorbikes and pulling, you know, coming up behind with um, mm. one point because, yeah, it became known, obviously, that we were financing, uh, in effect, uh, you know, a reward system. We were, we the, were rewarding the police, the police et cetera, yeah. for interception successful prosecutions and number of dogs intercepted as a way to counter the uh, corruption um, that was happening on the other side you know we we're trying literally trying to fight fire with fire at that yeah. time which resulted in the interception of thousands of dogs so that did yeah obviously we we're interfering with their business and these people are quite you know i mean there's you'll see if you look at the photos of the time of the police and the navy intercepting. You know, they're all armed uh, with rifles and whatever. This and is 2011. This is 2000, between 2011 2014. Yeah. So it took about three years. And then uh, it started to die down. It was improved also. At that time, there was the early 14, was it, we had the military coup. Yeah. This is the first one, I believe, that came in. The, the Well, the last one. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, we... One of the benefits, if you like, it was of the coup as far as we were concerned, was that the military government um, were keen to push forward popular bills, probably to do themselves more to the public. And there'd been an animal welfare bill on the statute for a long time, but it always sort of run out of time, etc. And they chose that as one of the bills that they would push through. And I had meetings with with Thai, Thai people as well, obviously, with the the generals who had taken over the, the um, you know, various departments, yeah. Department of Agriculture, everything was sort of run by but the But the opposition, would they be in those meetings as well? Or they're, they're no, kind of uh, running with the tail between the legs and trying that to get time, This was very shortly after the coup, yeah. bear in mind. So, um, but yeah, the Thai parliament was in session. And I was fortunate to be able to go there and actually address the Thai parliament at one stage and managed to get in terms of introducing what was then the Animal Welfare Act, uh, which was a very basic act, but at least it did bring in some form of animal welfare into Thailand, which included, and it was the very thing I had to specify, that it doesn't actually state in the law, if you read it, dog meat is illegal, but it does state that it's illegal to kill a dog or, or kill domestic animals for, for food without... Um, approval of a veterinarian a veterinarian is the only person yeah. really legally illegally able to kill a dog or a cat or that sort of animal so it in effect made it illegal and led to sort of shutdown of local restaurants and we were able to pursue local restaurants and also a shutdown of uh, the skin trade which was at least to remove it trade. out of that area yeah to remove it i mean i'm not yeah. saying don't get me wrong 
if I if you ask me, right, does nobody now eat dog meat in Thailand? It's like asking or, me, does anybody yeah. not take drugs in Thailand? Of course they do, and people will still snatch drugs. But does that industry still exist in that area? Or no, not in terms, we have no evidence of any widespread smuggling or yeah. widespread uh, collection of dogs. Yeah. We have no evidence of it. Do people still smuggle dogs across the border? Yes, we do have some evidence of that. We know local... The border is very open. People from Laos... I mean, it's the Mekong, it's massive. Mekong, they <laughs> crisscross all the time. Yeah. And we've caught one or two, or you know, not our agents have caught one or two people trying to smuggle four dogs or something in sacks across for local restaurants in the Vian Chen area because they eat dog meat in yeah. uh, Laos. So you're talking more on Udon, Tani, Vientiane. Yeah, and further over to, uh, further over on the border, from yeah. the name of the provinces La- now. Lao, Liao, something. Yeah, one the border is the provinces that are just over the border yeah. from Vian Chen. Yeah. So you've got that still going on, and no doubt there are people eating dog meat still in Isan and in the far north of But at a much smaller scale now. Much the, smaller the industry, scale. It's more for like personal use. It's not, you know, it's not industrial. Yeah. It's not uh, You may have seen in Phuket even. You'll see signs in Phuket. We've got them in various locations. I mean, there's one not far from me at uh, what Bandon Temple. Warn- they're, in, uh, they're in Burmese, Thai, and also Cambodian warning people that it's illegal to kill dogs for meat yeah. and there's pictures of those good behind prison and warning that you face up to two years in prison or of and or a 40,000 baht fine the reason for that is because obviously you've got a lot of migrant workers here on building sites who do eat and also from the northeast side who do eat, eat dog meat who would eat dog meat and we know of cases where dogs have been yeah certainly in Phuket have been snatched by local workers we're but always well, having problems with snares. Well, with why them why to are, catch they, are they doing that now? Because they, uh, it could be, they don't have the the, the funds to to purchase the meat. Well, is cheaper or is it a delicacy? What, what it's are the two reasons? things. I think. I mean, this goes back not long before COVID. In fact, we see less of it now. But we're seeing an awful. We're getting a lot of dogs now in the hospital to sadly lose their legs and whatever because they've been caught in snares. Now, the reality is, is that people do lay traps and whatever in the jungles and whatever to try and catch wild pigs and whatever. Okay. Now, it could be that some of them, if they catch dogs, happily will kill the dog and eat the dog. But a lot of them, the dogs will chew the way out and get they often chew their legs off to get free or whatever. And they'll also probably, we find them with, you know, with wire and whatever still fastened to them. And whoever has laid the trap has probably cut the, they want to be, they're not going to touch the dog, but they've cut the trap and the dogs have been let go. Sadly, more often than not, that dog will lose its leg. Um, but it's, you know, it, it come. We, we get them. We had one yesterday. Come in, it's exactly that. Um, the, and it's they're, they're jungle dogs getting trapped in snares. Like, you yes. know, in, let's say, uh, what's the national park? Maybe by Nython. Like, the, these type of areas, like, where it's yeah, pretty I much mean, rubber plantations. and People forget. I mean, I, I do... I do a lot of, also do hiking these days as well, but the 70% roughly of Phuket is actually covered in jungle. Yeah. You know, people think, how can you get lost? People, this guy got lost the other week in, in Nayang Beach. Yeah, yeah. How do you get lost in Phuket? Very easy, I can tell you, because the jungles are very dense, very thick. And so local people do, you know, there's people who plant rubber trees up there and whatever. There are tracks, but people will go and try and trap wildlife. And they will, 
maybe not on purpose, but some maybe, yeah, quite happy to catch dogs as well. Very difficult to catch people. But is that illegal what they're doing if they're setting traps for, let's say, wild pigs? It depends where it is. There's, if you go into a national park, for example, the main biggest national park is the one near Talang that runs right up almost on the eastern side of yeah. Talang where and the given rehabilitation much, project is. Yeah, and you can take that thing. I heard all, uh, on dirt bikes pretty much all the way to Chalong. Like different, uh, different yeah, you yeah. can, yeah. There's all, you can maybe you go in and out on the road a couple times, yeah. but pretty much that whole back mountain. But these are declared, that national park, for example, is declared, it's a no hunting zone. Okay. So they specify this is no hunting area. It's also, you're not supposed to farm or plant rubber trees there. I was in that national park just two weeks ago and there's rubber trees. Well, the national park starts here and there's people farming with fruit trees and rubber trees, probably illegally. I don't know, but or maybe they've got the border marked wrongly on the map. I have no idea, but nevertheless, um, officially speaking, no, they shouldn't in a national park where it is declared a no-hunting zone. But there's plenty of forest is not um, where they are, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, there's nothing to I stop. I mean, there's them. always a fine line. I mean, and th- yeah. these people, they might have been living there for who knows how long, maybe a couple generations, and they kind of end up claiming the land, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So to, to take a, a step back on that, um, uh, we were talking about the, the Yuling Festival and how this all connected, how we're con- right. we'll connect ourselves back to that. What, are, what is your foundation doing to maybe uh, prevent that or to Right, to what slow we do, obviously down? we do, um, in terms, we've, our main fo- area of focus at the moment is obviously has been, continues to be Thailand in most of the work we do. We also have a project going on in Vietnam We've been working with the uh, the People's Committee of Hanoi, and they've we've again we've had to pay for the survey, but nevertheless they've approved us to do carry out a survey on all the dog all dog slaughterhouses and dog meat restaurants, etc. Everything dealing with dog meat in Hanoi, and our view obviously is there, and we've got the with the mayor of Hanoi it's just changed, but generally speaking, to try and get it. De- get the dog meat trade ended in Hanoi. What people don't realise as well is that it is a health issue. Again, there is no laws governing dog meat, no inspections of restaurants or anything, and it is filthy. You go into the you know the slaughterhouses there, they are absolutely disgusting, the conditions in them. And there have been documented, many documented cases of um, uh, outbreaks of cholera resulting from the conditions of people who eat dog meat because of the condition of the meat and the filthy conditions that are associated with it. Yep. It is also, obviously, we also have done tests on dogs that have been slaughtered. Several hundred dogs have been slaughtered. You have to test on their brains, which have been done in, again in Hanoi and also verified by the uh, USCDC to uh, verify the percentage of dogs that are carrying rabies. And bear in mind, these dogs are generally not caught in Hanoi, they're transported illegally, again, across provinces in Vietnam. And they can, can they pass this on by, if you, if you were to consume this meat, rabies? In the, Depends in this on what it is. Where there are cases, where are documented cases of people who have died from rabies and their only connection is eating dog meat, but they would have to probably eat it undercooked. The reality is, you know, I'm not trying to tell you, well, don't eat dogs because you could catch rabies. Yeah. Handling the dog meat, yeah, if you got the saliva on as you're killing, you know, the blood or the saliva and then didn't wash your hands or something, you could catch rabies. If you ate it raw, uh, and some people do eat 
dog meat raw for whatever reason. You catch if it's probably cooked, you're not going to get dog. You know, no, you won't, you won't get rabies from eating dog meat. I'm not going to and, pass on inaccurate information. But, but, but th- this area in in Hanoi, it's it's l- it's legal to still process the dog meat, or this it's is not illegal. This is not the question. Yeah, that's it's not what, illegal. That, that's it's a borderline thing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the slaughterhouses, even for recognised meats, are illegal in Hanoi. You know, this is things, but no, it's yeah. just a yeah. And again, there's a lot of corruption going on, so you have to um, bear that in mind as well. Of course, I'd be very dubious about what. And I then, ate. What about the? <laughs> well, what about the population? What is their their opinion on that? In let's say Hanoi, are they for? Are they against? Are they like generally speaking mixed? I think what you find in generally in Asia, you're finding the younger generation who are becoming far more aware of. Uh, animal welfare, the environment, generally things that are far more opposed to it. We did a survey some years ago now in Vietnam when we uh, did a project there when we were actually, this is when we were working on stopping the trade from Thailand because we held meetings with the Vietnamese authorities as well and we were pointing out the fact that rabies is being, you know, they have no way of knowing that uh, whether any of these dogs have got rabies or not and that is something that ASEAN nations jointly have, well, originally it was 2020, they were going to eliminate rabies by in the ASEAN region. Yeah. And Vietnam were the lead nation in this. You know, they give nations, different nations have the lead. Vietnam were the lead. So we're able to point out to them that the, here they were trying to abolish rabies, and yet they were spreading rabies from country to country because some of these dogs will escape and some of these dogs... So mm. we're doing. So we were able to use that argument, and all, one of the arguments I used in meetings we had is um, with the US CDC and people got that's the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. We had the Thai Department of Animal Health there. We had uh, the Lao Cambodian government representatives as well as the Vietnamese. This was in Hanoi, second meeting in Bangkok. Was to get across. Look, you will. You're not going to end rabies by ending the dog meat trade. But I can guarantee you it'll never end whatever you allow it to continue in the manner it is now. So they really put them on the situation where they looked a bit foolish not to have agreed to ban the imported dogs from Thailand, Cambodia. And when, when and was this meeting happening? This was in 2014. And what has changed since then? Since then, I mean, that was a... Uh, there. It, well, since then, obviously, there hasn't been the trade to Vietnam at all. That was the other reason why it stopped, because yeah. the Vietnamese... Put a block on it. Are there still dogs going into Vietnam and cats, cats going into Vietnam from other countries? Sadly, I think probably there are. We know that dogs are being rounded up in, I mean, dogs are eaten in Cambodia. The borders between Cambodia and Vietnam are in the south are a lot easier to cross. In the yeah. north, they're not. There's only certain crossing points because it's all jungle and there are only certain crossing points that are on the main routes across from Thailand to Vietnam. So very difficult to go off road and cross um but there are also yeah we know cases where truckloads of cats have been intercepted coming from china into vietnam yeah so there are animals other animals being imported into vietnam from other countries for sure um would they be going by boat from like the no, south road of, road like always road yeah. road yeah. yeah and um yeah th- so it, it's still going on but most of, again, it's a bit like what happened in Thailand. You've got 
poor, a lot of poor villages in the centre and south of Vietnam, and so you'll get people collecting dogs, uh, maybe paying a dollar or two for them, uh, you know, if that much, to for, local for a villages. single dog. And are you uh, talking yeah. about, like, how, what size are, are these dogs at this point? Well, you're talking, I mean, you see the average size dogs. Like a soy dog. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The same throughout Asia. Yeah. The Thai, they're basically Asian. The actual one time they were known officially and uh, breed-wise as Asian village dogs. I mean, now obviously you get a lot of mixing, uh, and you, but generally speaking, a traditional Asian dog you can see. Yeah. And so that sort of average-sized dog. And what happens to those dogs in the journey, most of them end up going on going to Hanoi in the northern cities. We'll go first to, um, oh, I forget the name of the place, but it's a, it's a village uh, in northern Vietnam. And it's the whole village is based around the dog and cat meat industries. And it's like a wholesale. North, north of Hanoi? No, south. South of, south of Hanoi. South, south of Hanoi. Yeah, on the main, just off Highway 1. Maybe, what do you got out there? You got a Da Nang. It's and not Ta, Ta Rez, Thai town. Uh, it's not that big. You probably wouldn't recognize okay. the name. I'm not talking a big city. It's just a, a village mm. that is literally nothing but dog meat trade. And that's where the Thai dogs used to go. And they're holding huge... And that's quite pens. the journey to be traveling from Thailand all the way yep. out there. I mean, that's got to be what, at least a day, day and a half yep. in a truck. Yeah, and they, yeah, exactly. And I mean, they're held in sort of the, a lot of them were held in the jungle in Thailand as well, because they're basically, I mean, we've, yeah, we've got plenty of documented photos of these places where they're literally being held in the jungle, in the cages, for often a week or two until the, the basically the Thai, the Vietnamese buyers would come and pick their dogs they wanted. The ones they didn't want would be used for low for skin, local skin trade or uh, local consumption. And what the just for, for the meat and and the skin? What is the size of let's say the the dog industry in terms of like U.S. dollars? Oh, you're talking millions of dollars. Just, so we're not getting into the like hundreds of millions. Yeah, or? I mean, well, you work it out if you tell me in terms. I mean, uh, I used to have these figures to me, but it's now yeah, a few yeah, years. Yeah. But I mean, in Vietnam, dog meat was. I mean, it costs more than, you know, you'd pay more for dog meat than you would for chicken or pork, and that's why it was pushed as a... Delicacy, you know, almost. Yeah, almost. And it was, in Vietnam, to give you an idea how it differs from Korea, I mean, in Vietnam, uh, they believe... It's, it's at the, the end of the lunar cycle. It's good luck to eat dog meat. The beginning, it's not. So the peak, the sales of dog meat... So, but this is their winter, their lunar cycle. So you're talking the, February or... Well, throughout throughout the year, but... Particularly ah, okay. the peak peak time would be through the Tet period in winter. It's yep. believed it warms the body, and as well, it's a, it's it's good luck to eat dog meat at certain times, but bad luck at others. In Korea, of course, there's now uh, it's July August. You have the Botnai festival when the vast majority of dogs are consumed over a six week period on the belief that it cools the blood. So. These are all nonsensical it's beliefs. Complete hocus have, pocus. Yeah, it's, but it's a belief again, what, yeah. and it's passed down on what people believe, yeah. and it's what the the traders play on to increase sales. You know, and they tell, yeah, yeah, it's very popular in Vietnam with young men to drink to eat dog meat with beer. You know, that's going to increase increase their libido and their yeah. prowess or whatever. The reality is, in terms of beer, I mean, you know, science it has the opposite effect. Nevertheless, and on your, on your side, have have you ever tried it just to understand what was going on, or did you completely? No, 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 no sorry, no, I would never yeah. try dog meat. No, um, 
Uh, I used to eat meat. I don't actually. I, I mean, this is a personal view. I yeah, mean, I'm yeah. not veget. I'm not vegan or veg- vegetarian. Even I do it. See, but I choose not to eat meat because I've seen been inside slaughterhouses and things. I just find, and I've seen what how even here in Thailand with pigs, I've seen pigs hacked to death on yeah. markets. Did you understand the the process and the process? And I don't. I choose not to. But that's yeah. my personal belief. I don't preach to people. Yeah. I don't say you should not be eating meat yeah, for yeah. God's sake or whatever. You know, that's down to the individual. That's down to an individual's choice, and I respect their choice. People, though, that say um, they see nothing wrong with eating dog meat, I would happily take to see the whole process and then ask them if they still think the same thing. Um, I'd also argue in terms of dogs that bear in mind, man never bred dog for meat. If you go back historically... To be domesticated to... They were actually... Well, originally like an, an to alarm, guard an alarm system to guard livestock and to, to yeah. guard homes. That's what they were bred for, and yeah. that's why you have these different breeds over the years being bred for different purposes. And it's only really okay in the last couple hundred years they've been developed more for pets, you know. And you get the smaller breeds developed from the bigger breed, yeah. lap dogs and this sort of thing. But they were never bred specifically for meat. And the only places you will find dogs reared for for meat is in on dog farms in Korea. And if you go into one of those and see those places, they are horrendous. Are they, are they f- like fatty dogs now? They're, they're, they're big jindo, they're big breeds, big breeds, jindo breeds, or they'll take any dog that's unwanted as well from yeah. small ones. But they're big dog breeds, and literally they're fed uh, just liquidized waste, and they're crammed in there. They never see light of day. They live in cages with open bars, which allow it's allowed so the feces builds up in piles or drops through onto the next dog. It's filthy, it's horrible. Yeah. They're pumped full of antibiotics to try and stop them dying from diseases, which again leads to antibiotic resistance for people that eat it. Um, yeah. You know, Korea has the highest incidence of antibiotics. And this resistance. is South Korea as well. This is South Korea. So, and, and this is still continuing. This industry worldwide is still there today, even predominantly in South Korea. Do you see this disappearing anytime soon? Uh, I mean, it's producing. It's becoming less popular, as I said, because of the attitude of people. I mean, we keep drifting off the subject. You yeah. want to go back to Yulin? Uh, Yulin, no, yeah. That's, no, we, that's so we don't. We don't actually work in China. Yep. There's a lot of groups do, but yeah, we have helped in China. We had a group in China that we, who actually were taking, got dogs that had been rescued by somebody else or weren't mentioned and then abandoned. And they came and they were left volunteers and got these dogs and we helped them get them to the US. Mm. But that was a few years ago. And uh, we don't directly, I don't particularly, a lot of people will go into in both Korea and China and they will rescue dogs, what they call rescue, or they will buy dogs from um, dog breed, you know, from markets, yeah. from whatever, and they shut down dog meat farms in Korea and buy them out. Uh, and then they're stuck with the dogs because you can't adopt them in Korea because in Korea they'll only adopt small dogs because everybody lives in apartments. Yeah, it's quite small, the house So they have going. to try and then spend all fortune getting them to other countries or whatever. I made it quite clear that our policy is not to do that. The reason is is because you're doing nothing to end the dog meat trade. In actual fact, you're encouraging it. I remember a, a reporter, a well-known reporter, for the, the Mail, the UK, a freelance reporter, who I was working with at the time, who was in Yulin, calling me, he says, you wouldn't believe it. 
half the hotel staff are running out, going out, asking permission for time off to go into local villages to buy dogs to bring back to sell to activists because activists were paying huge amounts of money to rescue these dogs because they would be raising huge amounts of funds, donations to do it. But the reality is the dog meat trade is a business. It's a market. It's a market. And it's like any business based on supply and demand. You go in and you buy dogs, you're just condemning other dogs to death to replace them because whatever there is a market for it, people will do it. So... What we focus on is very much, it's not, it doesn't help much with raising money, but we focus most more on education and also on uh, advocacy, working with trying to persuade governments to change the laws, which is what we did in Thailand. Now it's, that's so, what we try so to do in your, Vietnam. So your, on your side, when you're getting your uh, um, funding and sponsorships, most of this is going towards the educational side, and, uh, I'm, and obviously a large percentage has to be going towards... Uh, your your sanctuary as well in oh yeah i mean our listen our we operate now it's the i mean yeah okay soy dog is the largest animal foundation yeah. in asia dealing with yeah. domestic animals dogs and cats and we actually our main focus is to solve the problem of no more stray dogs and cats i mean okay it's much i'm a fanciful but you have to have a mission and if you unless you start on yeah. that mission you never get anywhere i often say you know you don't climb a mountain until you've taken the first yeah. step what, what so is the, the goal, though? Like, uh, or what? Like, uh, if you were to map out the the goal of we want to make it to this point by this year, what is that? Is there? Do they put numbers on that? Like, is it? Are you able to quantify it? Well, we have. We're able to quantify in terms of our main focus, which is, in effect, uh, reducing the number of stray dogs and seeing a day when there's an end to animal cruelty and an end to stray dogs, where there are no. Nobody wants to see stray dogs on the streets, whether you hate dogs or like dogs. Yeah. You know, so that's the that's the goal. Now, that's a huge, ambitious target. As I said, if you'd have seen Phuket 20 years ago, most people probably wouldn't even remember that far back, no. you would have gone to any street, any street, anywhere in Phuket, any time of the day, you would see stray dogs everywhere, most of them in horrendous condition. And the situation when we first arrived, you know, came to Phuket, was getting worse, not better because nobody was actually doing much about it. People were feeding dogs. And was it dangerous at that time, too? Because, you know, sometimes the, the strays, they get very territorial. and uh, You didn't generally see much in the way of packs of dogs. Generally, people come... Listen, there are different types of dogs going around. Most dog attacks are actually from own dogs, right? Because tired people generally do not lock their dogs away. And dogs are, as you pointed out, territorial. Feral dogs, truly wild dogs, are generally frightened of people and they yeah. will run away from people. You get the very, it's very rare to read, you know, you've seen these occasionally in the paper and it's always front page news of a, a pack of dogs on the beach or something have run after or attacked somebody. That's very unusual. But most of the dogs, these dogs, are generally have got their own territories. They probably live on the beach and they're being fed by restaurants to keep yeah. people away, to protect the restaurant. So they do develop their own areas for sure. And obviously you've got neighbour, what we call uh, community dogs. And local villagers are often quite happy for dogs to live on their area and they'll feed them. They won't say they're my dog or take responsibility for it if it gets sick. But nevertheless, yeah. they're quite happy for it to be there because they will bark and they will warn if they see strangers around. And okay, they'll chase people off. But the vast majority of people I know have ever been bitten by a dog. They've been walking past someone's end of somebody's drive or whatever, a garden. Yeah. And a dog's rushed out and bitten them. 
and that dog is belongs to that house. Yeah, and he's being territorial yeah. towards that. Yeah, and that's, you know, but it's always, oh, it's the stray dogs to blame. But generally speaking, stray dogs do not uh, are frightened of people. I mean, yeah. if they weren't, well, we spend a fortune every year on catching dogs because they're not easy to catch at the stray dogs, you know, and at the moment, as I say, our... You know, we're sterilizing now. I Doing mean, mobile sterilization. Now. Yeah, we do, we have mobile sterilization clinics. We also obviously have clinics in. We have a fixed clinic in Bangkok, and uh, we have this obviously uh, hospital, and also have a sterilization clinic at uh, Centre in Phuket. Yeah, but we have now have nine mobile teams, six of which are operating in Bangkok, which we, um, which is our main focus at the moment. And then we have three: one in working in Suratani, one in Nakhon Si Tamarat, and one in now in. Your latest one is in Pangna. We don't have a mobile team working in Phuket anymore. Most of our, we do some, occasionally we'll have a mobile clinic from operating out of our centre and yeah. they'll go and up, work in a particular orbit tour, a particular district. Uh, but generally speaking, it's just a maintenance operation in Phuket. We, we focus on dogs throughout Thailand because we are, don't do, you know, our mobile teams generally are just doing dogs because dogs are seen as the problem. Yeah. In Phuket, I did warn this many years ago. I'd wrote to write articles for the Phuket Gazette at the time, years ago when they existed. And pointed out many years ago, we can solve the stray dog problem here. But bear in mind, if we did and there were no more stray dogs, you know, you got to that stage, you would see an explosion in cats and in wild monkeys. And we saw that. I mean, where is where there were mangrove trees? You could see where villages used to have dogs, used to keep the monkeys out. Monkeys are coming in now and going in houses stealing food. Yeah, cats, I saw this. There's been at, an explosion um, in population of cats. Where uh, there's a, the Monkey Hill in Phuket town. Yeah. And but at the very bottom of the hill, there's about twenty dogs. Yeah. And it, I think if they're not there, those monkeys are coming down the hill. Yeah. And yeah. these so, monkeys, they're they're vicious though. Well, those dogs are sort of based on that temple as the yes. base of the hill. Yeah. But they're vicious and they will, you know, and uh, yeah, and they'll snatch and whatever. But you've got. But the reality is, if you then got rid of the like the cats, so you know you've got a stage, it'd be far harder to do. You're going to see a huge explosion in rats, rats yeah. mice, and what feeds on them, yeah. snakes. Yeah. And believe you me, there is rats and mice are already here in large numbers For in, sure. in Phuket. Oh, you see them dead on the road every every time yeah. you drive. Down. I mean, and there would be their population would explode. So I used to say to people, be careful what you wish for. Because yeah, we couldn't we could eliminate literally. I think you know. I mean, yeah, it takes time because I say the whole purpose. And people say to us, "Why don't you take the dogs?" Well, literally, literally. I mean, March was our record month. We did over fourteen thousand dogs in March, mainly in Bangkok and. Provinces. But then you're bringing them back to their territory. Where would we put them? We put them back in their territory because dogs, as you pointed out, are territorial. Yeah. They keep other dogs out as well from their territory, and your idea is you move from area to district to district doing it in a not a random way we always get asked, oh can't you go over here to this province and do it or that province we we can't we don't have the resources to do everywhere in thailand simultaneously so we focus on one area and then you move to the yeah. next one gradually and the same with Phuket. you work in one district then to the what, next. what is your process like uh, if someone calls you up and said there's a stray dog it might be causing problems uh, do they give soy dog a call and then you're going to come in and, and uh, how would that work exactly? Depends what the problem is. We'll try and resolve the problem. And we have a, we have also have community outreach teams. We have two teams working full-time in Phuket who are actually treating 
dogs, not only stray dogs, bear in mind, we're also helping people, particularly now it's got even worse with poor people who could not afford veterinary treatment, and that's grown. I mean, we also supply a lot of food to volunteers, and again, they used to get their food often from hotels and whatever, you know, well, Thai I mean, people are very. This is Thai people. A lot of Thai. I'll people. give an example. There's so there's a dog out front. Uh, I forget the name of this dog. I know its name. It's just not coming to my head. And then there's another pack of dogs that stay at uh, the hotel next door. Yeah. And the pack of dogs, they're great. They all get along. But this other dog, he's on the corner. And when the Seven Eleven was open before, it would sit out there, and because of the the, the aircon, it loved the aircon. It would attack every male that went near the place. I must have fed this dog 50 times. It didn't care. Mm. I'd give it some treats, you know, because I, I was tired of this dog. You couldn't even get into the... If you're at the 7-Eleven, you couldn't get in. Yeah. And then the owners would come out and they tried to shoo it, but they're males. So it would just go at them too. And like, he was helping the guys on the corner that was feeding the... the that was cooking chicken. But those guys cooking chicken, they're only there in the morning till about 1 p.m. So after 1 p.m., this dog is all by itself and it hangs out the 7-Eleven and you couldn't go in and then if it goes over there it would attack You say it was keeping dogs of the dogs out but uh, was it keeping humans it out? It was keeping humans out of the 7-Eleven. <laughs> well I'm amazed the 7-Eleven amazed the put up with that but there you they, go. They kind of just went with it and I, yeah, again, I must have given this dog, I'd go give him a steak bone after dinner and he was fine to give it, he was, you couldn't get close to him but no matter how, what you gave him I could go up to him right now. He just gives the teeth, and but only to males, not to females. So, um, I think my, my point of that is when you have a situation like that and someone calls you up, how do you handle it? Right. We try and see. I mean, first of all, the main thing is to obviously eject the dog is sterilized as far as we're concerned, yeah. which it would imagine would have been already. We'll discuss it in different ways. I mean, we'd often say to the owner something like, we'll try and avoid having to bring it into the shelter for obvious reasons. Well, this has no owner, this dog. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah we have. I appreciate that. Yeah. But maybe if it's caught, if the 7-Eleven, they weren't complaining about it, it makes me wonder, well, how big a problem was it? Uh, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Honestly, it wasn't. That's what I mean, because I would have suggested to them, look, you've got leftovers. Take the dog away. Get it. What's surprising, once you get a dog used to going to a certain spot, it will go to a certain spot. Yeah. And generally, yeah, I mean, it's unusual for a dog to growl at people going into a shop. I can see it wanting to growl at the dogs, and that's a perfect example of what I mean. Dogs are territorial against keeping other dogs out. Yeah. But unless it saw the shop as its property and then became... we If, yeah, if was, there's a generally dangerous dog, yeah, we we will take dogs away if there's a, a genuine... If it's genuine... But people are, we've got to be very careful. Oh, no, this that. one's, uh, I'm not, I didn't invite yeah. you here today to take away the dog. <laughs> no, well, I understand that. But yeah. we're not going to try, yeah. you know, we have at the moment, and it's got worse since COVID because so many people have left Phuket and have dumped their own pets and whatever. I mean, we have at any one time approaching 1,500 animals in our care at centre here. That includes dogs and cats in the in our hospitals we have two hospitals big dog hospital which is the biggest in right asia at, at your uh, yeah in Phuket. yeah and that's yeah. not just residents that anyone includes treatment but we have you know it will be so a thousand dogs and cats so a resident dogs and cats and we've had to buy more land since covid to extend because of the difficult you know the, and also it's we're getting less out less adopted because again we used to go, go you know they're so our numbers have gone up from between 900 to 1,000 before COVID to between 1,400 and 1,500 now. On Like on residents at uh, one time? 
that's in residence and in treatment. Yeah. So we've got, I'm talking on site. Yeah. So, you know, it's like two, we normally have about 200 dogs and probably some number of cats having treatment. So not that off. You're still talking over a thousand yeah. residents. So uh, we still got off Yulin again, haven't we? No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. I, that. That was clear. That that I think it was interesting that part of the story yeah. and how you were involved in the Vietnam Vietnam trade and how yeah. that's kind of cracked down. I think that that kind of covered that. It was more getting the Seven Eleven dog out of here. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> if someone does call and, and do you do you and the dog is say like quite dangerous do you do you send a team out do they need to use some sort of like tranquilizer to bring the dog yeah, in do that. and and where does that dog go from that point if it is dangerous does it have to come stay with you like what if it's too dangerous to even go live with the family but you need to get it out of a specific area yeah we've got a um, uh, if we take we will not take a dog and relocate it somewhere else which is i mean sadly that's often what um it's the bane of my life, to be honest, are new developments and hotels because they allow their the construction phase workers to come in and bring dogs with them. And then they're surprised when the dogs are left when the construction team move on. Because often they've probably bred and we're up one of our biggest areas of picking dogs up is construction sites to new to them. And then they're complaining about them. And they will often, if they can, pick the if they can get hold of the dogs themselves and then dump them somewhere else. Um, you know, it's just passing the buck to somewhere yeah. somebody else. And I remember being asked, we used to get calls from hotels from, say, Hotel A, can you come and remove these dogs? So, where do you want me to put them? Would you like me to, say, can dump them at Hotel B up the, up the road? Yeah. Uh, is that what you want me to do? Uh, well, no, well, what do you want me to do with them? Oh, um, well, can't you look after them? You know, oh, so... You know how much it costs to look after one dog a month, you know, including staff and food. Are you going to pay that? Uh, uh, well, that's your job, though, isn't it? You know, yeah. no, it's not. We're a foundation. We rely on um, donations. And you want us to look after your problem, which is you created in the first place by allowing these dogs onto your premises. And now you decide it's causing you an issue. And we'll try and edge. I mean, we've had we had very good relationships with some hotels. I mean, classic example I can mention. Oh, you know, I'm not going to mention any hotel names, but yeah, the, yeah. the Everson Group, for example, uh, that hotel is now gone. But they, Ava and Sonu, that's where Everson comes from. The owners, we worked with them. They had feeding stations for the dogs on there, which a member of staff would take to them, kept them away from the areas where the hotel, you know, the restaurant areas, etc. And they actually. Um, used to call us any issue we would any treatment was needed or whatever they used to even sell toy dogs to guests and they would explain to guests that these dogs cats were on site and it was a part of thai culture thailand and but the dogs were cared for you know whatever and if they'd like to make a donation they could and they had a donation box if they'd like to buy one of these toys that ava had made and everything they could and that's what you call <laughs> forward thinking and yeah responsible hotel as opposed to one that will um yeah just behind the reason we even started soy dog when i came in holiday which uh if i go back to that was i mean and this is more a typical and actual tomorrow i'm visiting yeah, I, I think that that's a good segue in that and like i explained at the beginning of this podcast we um we wanted to kind of jump more into a heavier story so we could uh uh you know 
digest it and be a little bit more fresh on that. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've heard a few of your, your podcasts where you've explained uh, your story, and obviously it's quite clear on the Soy Dog Foundation website of the backstory. But uh, let's give a brief, under, uh, a brief recap to people that might not be aware. Um, first off, what brought you to Thailand? We came to Thailand to get married. Oh. Okay. Uh, my late wife and I, Jill, we'd uh, both been married before in the UK. And this is 2003, correct? This is 2003. Sorry, no, this is 1996. 19- the when you originally yeah, yeah, came yeah, to yeah. get married. Okay, I think I've jumped forward to when you moved here. He have, okay. yeah. Okay. okay. So 1996, we came here to get married. Um, I'd always wanted to visit Asia. Jill had visited Asia, parts of well, India and whatever, but hadn't been to... Of these, so we looked, uh, and we didn't want to get married in the Carib- Caribbean, where it's basically a conveyor belt sort of system. So we looked for somewhere, and we found, so no, it only just started. Actually, you could get married in Thailand at that point, and uh, it was it was in a brochure, holiday brochure, and you could pick Thailand. And you're both from the UK, just yeah, to, we're both from uh, Yorkshire, uh, Yorkshire, in the UK, Yorkshire, yeah, north of England. So we plumped for Thailand, and actually the Dusit. Uh, now the, the Dusit Tani Resort at the time was called the Dusit Laguna on uh, on Laguna to get married at. They were a hotel that offered this service. We were actually the second couple ever to get married there, but that's by the way. And it was not, you had to go to Bangkok and whatever, and uh, it was very well organised. They had somebody to go to the embassy and sort everything out. Cut a long story short, yep. with to being in, touring Thailand a bit and also having been to Hong Kong, we came down here. Uh, got married here. We fell in love with the place. Um, actually, uh, and then we used to come back on holiday. And you're coming uh, back to the same area, Laguna? Same area. We, what we try to do, we try to go somewhere different first, and then we'd end up with a... So we do a week, say, in Cat- Borneo, uh, Vietnam, oh, okay. or whatever. I mean, we did uh, Malaysia. And then we'd end up coming here. One occasion we went to Samui, we didn't come here, but... I think another occasion went to Penang and didn't come here, but both times wished we'd come back here because we'd met people, we got to know people, and, and we it's felt e- at home here. For a vacation, it's easy. Yeah. And it's very comfortable, it's simple. Yeah. And although we're aware of this, we'd seen, I mean, Jill used to love her food, used to love going markets, and all, you know, felt for these dogs she saw everywhere, but obviously in hotels, it kept away from them. But at this particular time, um, yeah, we went to a, a hotel where the hotel we were staying at on that occasion. Um, they had like a cocktail party in the evening for guests and return guests and things. And we met this, uh, she's actually a British lady living in Switzerland who'd been staying a couple of months at this hotel. And she befriended this dog. And he looked in lovely condition. He had a wound on his head, we noticed. Do you remember the name of the dog? That yeah, we, well, we christened it Naga, which mm. is a Thai dragon type creature. Mm. But I've forgotten what she called it. But she was leaving the next day after this party, and I said, "Would you just keep an eye out on the dog for us and check it was all right?" She'd had it to the vet. She used to get it washed and all the rest. I said, "Well, we're leaving in a couple of days, but yeah, we'll pass it, maybe pass it on to someone else just to look after anything about it." And the GM of the hotel was there and said, "Yeah, it's a lovely dog, isn't it?" And blah blah blah. And at the end of the night, we sort of, oh, come on then, followed us. We didn't allow him in the room or anything like that. But yeah. We were on a ground floor room with a little patio outside and uh, and leading onto the grass on the beach, and he slept there. Next morning, he wasn't there, didn't think anything about it, but I did go looking for it, couldn't find him. And 
I asked the uh, assistant, the GM, he'd gone off to Bangkok for meetings. I think I didn't see him again. I asked the assistant manager if he said, oh, yes, he said, you probably appreciate we don't really want dogs living on the premises. So with what we've done, though, we've taken it to a nice temple and the dog will be kept for there and whatever. I said, oh, okay. I said, tell me the name of the temple. I'll go out and visit it and maybe make a donation and just see the dog. Oh, I don't know, but I'll go find out. And came back to me. Oh, it, we didn't take it to a temple, actually. We took it to just the north of the island, near the bridge. There's restaurants along the beach. Used north, be. of, north of Maikau. North of Maikau. The lows, they used to, there's still one or two. There used to be a lot of restaurants just before yeah, you got yeah, to yeah. the bridge on the left-hand side. And we've left it there, but it'll be plenty of food. So. I said to Jill, look, I'm going to rent a car, go up and see if I can find this it's dog. A bit, because, bit of a hike. <laughs> You're yeah, talking 30 minutes. Because yeah. we'd actually met somebody who was feeding dogs at temples, an American girl. Yeah. And uh, maybe I could talk to her. Maybe she could get it to a vet. I'm even time think, well, can we get this dog to England? Or whatever? <clears throat> so we got, you know, we felt it's about the dog. Hired a car, went up there. Um, which obviously I didn't speak Thai, but she had a dog. And I knew fit mm. enough to know nobody had seen a dog. So this was now, by this time, it was our last but one day. Um, so we asked the general manager to put a word out, asked Eve to put word out. If anybody, if the dog tried to make its way back, let us know, and we would do, you know, pay for any vet treatment. That following morning, the day we were leaving, Jill had befriended, got to know a little, you have these fruit stalls on the beach in front of the hotel, and these girls, she was a Muslim girl, this is it's pretty much right. You're right on Bangtao Beach, right? Yeah, we're on Bangtao Beach, and this girl told us that uh, uh, she gets there early in the morning to set the stall up. She'd seen that morning the dog was outside our room. Some security guards had got it, taken the dog, clubbed it to death, and put it in a sack and taken it away. So you can imagine, she'd about that. Uh, I mean, we felt almost uh, sort of not sick responsible, to, sick, sick. and I mean, we contacted the. Hotel, but what can you do? And I mean, I'm not saying the hotel manager ordered the dog to be no, I doubt destroyed. It. No. He probably just passed it on to the assistant. Said, hey, can you remove the dog? The dog. Yeah. Passed it on to them, yeah. down the line, to garden staff or whatever. Yeah. And for them, get keep, rid of the and dog. And keep in mind, this is 1996 in Phuket. This is not, no, this, well, this would now be 90, probably 98, 99, 99. because we'd be coming back to Yeah, so years. also then it's, it's a yeah. different time back then. Too. Well, it's a different time, but interesting enough, I have a meeting tomorrow at a hotel, similar situation. Okay. And things haven't completely changed. So things haven't changed completely, and certainly hotels will, similar, and although we're going to keep this, hopefully resolve this in an amicable way. Yes. Um, because, uh, yeah, what has happened is actually illegal now in terms of the animal welfare law. So you cannot just grab dogs, shove them in sacks and then dump them in the sea or put them in mangrove swamps or whatever. Um, that's illegal. Yeah. And, um, yeah, in terms of that sort of thing going on. So you yeah. say it doesn't go on anymore, sadly. Yeah, I'm so very surprised to hear that. It, uh, it can still go on. Mm. We do obviously get things like that, so it does go on. So at the, at this point, uh, you, you've you've found this horrifying information out, and you're 
trip's coming to an, an end nearly, and you're about to head back home. Yeah, we returned home. Obviously, my jail at the time was. Is this kind of what sparked the. These, well, that's this what idea? really, I think, sparked it off. Yeah. I mean, we'd already had in mind of, to move when I retired. I planned to take early retirement, actually, when the plan was when I got to 55, we would retire. Ended up being earlier than that. I'll come into a so minute. So this time you're about 50 years old. Yeah. And, and then some friends of ours who live here, actually, groups of friends, one lived here permanently, the other didn't. But he was an airline pilot and his, his wife was Thai. Had actually bought, um, they were selling land plots at Laguna. And so they said, why don't you buy one? We thought, well, at that time it was it was cheap. You know? Yeah. And so we looked at potential, well, even if it's just as an investment, whether we decide not to or not, it's probably not a bad investment. So. And the Thai bot was not that great. That was probably, <laughs> well, I, I know a U.S. dollar probably Correct. back then was a 40 to 1 or something. Well, I mean, when we, it's funny enough, the year we came to Thailand first, it was the Asian crash year. Yeah. We were getting 90-odd bars at that time. Yeah, yeah. It didn't last for long, no, no, but no. for many years it was 70s and gradually for, for the For the, yeah. the pound. Yeah, sorry, just after the, we yeah. came. The first time we came, we got married, it was 30-odd to the pound. So mm. it was still, at that point it was strong, but things were a lot cheaper. Now. Yeah. Um, but at that point, yeah, the bar was very good. It made sense. Made sense to buy the land. And, we did. And then uh, how long did you guys sit on this land before you decided to build and move here? Well... It was then came up that the company I worked for was actually, like many companies, was downsizing in Europe and building a new plant in China and was looking for people to uh, take voluntary redundancy and early retirement. And so you were a chemical engineer? Yeah, yeah. The company I worked for, though, made lithographic printing plates. Okay. But they made their own coat. The coating that goes on the plates is yeah. very much specialised chemicals. And uh, I worked on as a... Uh, basically manager there so um it worked out that what they were offering would have meant i would have if i'd have stayed on i could have stayed on until i was 55 would have would have been crazy just to make sense what they were offering so uh yeah i put my hand up at 51 they give you the severance package and we then took the decision to move up push ahead and move to thailand so we we got a builder came over on holiday in well, in 2001, we came to hire a builder, then designed the house and everything over the internet generally. Yep. The house and whatever, it took about a year to build. I came over here early 2003 just to make sure everything was finished off as you have to be here. Jill took care of selling our house in England and we moved lock, stock and barrel here in, yep, July uh, 2000 or June was it 2003. Now, you weren't looking to come over here and, let's say, golf and lay on the beach and soak in the sun you you, you had no we some did plan i mean part of the property the, we got has got three golf membership we thought we could take up golf scuba diving was actually my passion i used okay. to spend half my holidays scuba diving and i thought great uh suffice to say neither has ever swung a golf club in action and i went scuba diving for half a day once about a well, year it's not, after it's not easy in. to scuba dive in phuket there's nowhere to go i mean <laughs> you can go out to pp you can go to rachia but it's a it's a long day yeah, yeah, right. yeah, but that's what I used to do on holiday, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's a case of, yeah, literally we decided to try and do something. And I looked into what was happening already. There was an Australian vet who had moved here and spent two years here, set up a, um, a project sterilising dogs at, at temples. Uh, the name of the project now has gone out of my brain. I say my, my, yeah, age, yeah. my memory is going terrible. 
Um, they'll come to me. Uh, but she was finishing at the time. She'd just come over two years. She was having to go back to work in Hong Kong. Uh, there were a couple of other groups here, but they were basically doing um, feeding dogs, and there was one group who would allow their volunteers to get, I think it was five dogs a month, sterilised at a local... Um, and it was... It, local vets. It wasn't commercialised at this point. It's just kind of a very small operation. It was just basically operation. So we looked, at what, we looked in terms of could we help somebody. Um there was a Dutch lady who had just moved here, again, just retired. She'd been living in Bangkok, and she actually came the name of Soy Dog. And she, though, had different views to everybody else. She believed the answer to it was large-scale sterilisation. Not that they were in a position, she was in a position to do that at that time. But I agreed with what she was doing and decided to join forces with her. Jill had actually learnt, uh, been doing... Uh, teaching a course in England to qualify for teaching English language to foreigners because she felt maybe she would like to teach underprivileged children English as a mm. sort of something to, to do. But that too very difficult to do. And there's a lot of people involved in helping underprivileged children and whatever on the island. And really you needed work permits and this sort of thing to be able to do that. Yeah, the whole process to set yeah, up, isn't it? Uh, so I simple. was on a, you know, we were retired on a retirement visa. Yeah. So... We joined, well, I joined forces with Margot and Jill joined shortly afterwards. And that's how Soy Dog started. And then, I mean, it was very low key. At the and what was the operation like at that? I read you guys, now is this before you've moved to Phuket Town and set up a facility? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was just literally, we were, we were using local vets. But also, the Australian vet had left us, gave us her equipment. She okay. had a truck and whatever, gave us her equipment, medical equipment. She had a lot of overseas vets writing to offering their services and nurses volunteering so what we did we lost we sort of started this full time really in about october of 2003 and we would get vets over from different countries states canada in fact one of the biggest clinics we had for them was canadian which, vets where which city was that in this were they were from um, i think they were coming from toronto toronto but th we had a, a big clinic at a school in Bandon, and there were also nurses there. Uh, that was in sort of 2004. And at this point, it's just volunteers? It's volunteers, but then in the meantime, we were we were, we were would take dogs itself. I mean, the first time I met Margot, I helped her at Lamsing Beach down the road from here. Yep. Uh, and literally, we got, I got a few more people involved, and we were carrying these dogs up. So she was then taking them to a vet. And we took them to uh, local vets who would do it for low cost. There weren't that many vets on the island then, but we had two or three that would uh, do it for us. For and then how were you funding it at that point? Basically, at that point, very little funding coming in. Most of it was, uh, a lot of it was at our own expense. I mean, so I dogged up. <clears throat> I mean, people think, oh, you know, I must, how much do I earn and this sort of thing. I'm reliant on, my. I have a good pension. Yep. But most of my savings over the years have gone on Soy Dog, and I've never received a penny in payment from Soy Dog. We were always volunteers and never received yeah. anything. And same with Margot. I mean, today we employ over 300 staff, both in Kent, Bangkok and yep. different areas. But that's, that's going back to the beginning. It was entirely volunteers. Um, if you say, I mean, what happened then, obviously, uh, the story so we were working like that for the first year and in the first year well the first 15 months because i come 
started keeping records from day one. We managed to sterilise uh, just over a 1,000 in the whole year dogs on Phuket. Now, if you take that in context of now, in, I mean, it's, and it's gradually increased, but I'll go into the context now. Yep. This year, we, the aim was to sterilise 150,000 this year, and we sterilise, well, you know, far more in a week. We so did in were a year you getting now. local recognition from the Thai government, uh, noticing of what you guys were doing, and this was all uh, no. <laughs> okay. And no, generally, I mean, over the top. Yeah, I think generally we we also did work with the local, tried to work the local livestock department, but more often than not, we worked with people like Phuket, the vet from who was a private a vet working for the Phuket town. Um, uh, Obotor doing local sterilization there was a little bit going on and so we would work with him as well and take dogs to him when he was working in particular streets he would set up his table and we would catch dogs for him quite often what would happen the local livestock if they were doing anything would just set up a table and wait for people to come they weren't actively catching dogs and we'd already taught ourselves how to dart dogs you asked earlier yeah you know we have to catch dogs either with nets but if you can't more often not you can't get near a near enough to do that the feral so we blow dogs dart. are the feral dogs dart. they're gone in a yeah. second into the bush and yeah. so we blow dart them yeah uh, with anesthetic they don't go down immediately but you have to watch them and then watch them going down because yeah. often it takes a few minutes but then they go and then you can pick them up safely uh but you know so that's how you do it and so we were doing that and that this probably goes into the story of uh, with with Jill and she was yeah, darting exactly. it in the I buffalo mean, this, fields, correct? This goes into Jill and then to what happened then when, of course, later in 2004. But in, it was a clinic at, this clinic I described, actually with the Canadian vets at Bandon. It was a big clinic. So Jill and I and Margot were all out uh, catching dogs for this clinic because we needed plenty of dogs. We were encouraging the children as well with the families. They were bringing dogs in. I've actually a Friend of mine who filmed children bringing the with the parents bringing their own dogs to the mm. to the clinic. So you did all sorts of you know we had big posters up educating the children. That's why we like to do them at schools. So you're educating at the same time and encouraging the children to bring dogs in. But we were out in the village, obviously in surrounding area, catching dogs. And um, Joel went off also with funny enough an American guy who was. He liked catching dogs. He saw himself as a bit of a Rambo-type character. I think he oh saw himself God. as, you know, whatever. Fair enough. He used to come dressed for the part. But yeah. Whatever, I won't say any more than that. It was it. So Joel went off with him, um, and uh, they went off uh, actually just north of Bandon, between Bandon and Talang. There's now houses there, but there was a... It was yeah, just behind... I used to live in Bandon, so that... It's that that river they keep fixing up in the back road. Do you know the one I'm talking about? And then yeah. there's all the, there's just like farm fields way back there. But well, that's right. I mean, this was the road between Bandon and Talang. And before you get to that big bend, there still actually is a building merchant there. And that's where she went. But then all that side is now a housing development and shops and yep. everything else. That was just what I call Buffalo Field. I mean, it's basically old rice paddies, these places, yeah. where they know, you know, and, um, but they now had buff. Water buffalo. Little pig farms yeah. out there. And yeah. And this, of course, was um, late October, so it was peak of the rainy season. It was flooded, as it is. Jill knew this dog that she wanted. She'd seen it. It was a big mama dog. Uh, it had several litters. And it lived at the builder's merchant. 
And if you know at Builders Merchants, you'll see these piles of drain pipes for sale and whatever. This dog used to sleep inside one, so she snuck up from behind it, bang, and it's boom, you know, perfect shot. Great, got it. Of course, the dog, the first thing, boom, out it jumps, runs over into this water buffalo field, which is flooded. I mean, not talking, you know, but about that deep. Yeah, you know, uh, two uh, feet deep. Yeah, whatever. Well, maybe not even that, maybe a foot to 18. But yep. big enough, deep enough, so that a dog goes down, it's going to drown. Yeah. So Jill, obviously, she shouted to, I'll call him Ram- Sam, it's not his... Rambo. Dog. Yeah, Rambo, you know. He was dressed yeah. in his... Clean white socks and pumps and thing. No way I'm going in there. So okay. Jill, uh, who who had actually, uh, she cracked her ribs. So she'd had a fall and so she was a bit weak anyway. And I think her resistance was probably a bit down. She hadn't been feeling The immune system is yeah, low immune at system this point. Yeah, immune system is probably a bit low. Yeah. So she went off after this dog running after it and got there. She went fair way in before it went down. And then it goes down and obviously that went down. So she got it and she literally, it was quite a heavy dog. She got hold of it, got its head over the water and literally dragged it back to the road and got it into the truck. Then they got it back to the clinic and it was sort of a bit of a joke. Jill was sort of covered in mud and just got some of this mud and threw it at Sam. Called, you know, it's not his name, but that out straight yeah. away. Rambo, what are we going to call him? Yeah. Uh, and it was sort of a bit of a joke and everybody laughed about it. It was a couple of days later. I mean, end of September, sorry, it was. Because my birthday, which is early October, Jill had been preparing, had invited a lot of friends round to the house and had been preparing and everything. And Jill loved to, big hobby was cooking yep. and create, you know, catering for people. She enjoyed doing it. But that night she, it was two or three days late, she said, John, I'm going to have to go to bed. I just feel really ill. So people came to the party. Jill wasn't there, you know, up in bed, which is so unlikely. And when I went to see her, she was, you know, she's always wrong. She said she got a really bad flu attack, whatever. But something's off. It's not wrong. The following, um, but that night she was, sorry, the following morning she was in, she was in a lot of pain in her legs. And I called a friend and we got, um, got her in the car, literally. And how many days after from this? This is probably four or five days after. Uh, We got her down to the casualty of Bangkok, Phuket. They got on a trolley, took one look at her, and we literally watched her legs turn from flesh colour to grey, and they whipped her up to intensive care. Jill doesn't remember anything after that for about a month, and I mean, I was going on, and I mean, the doctors told me that she, this was on first night at the time, you know, that basically she got what the septicemia, which is where, you know, the blood rushes to save your vital organs, and you get gangrene, in your extremities, your arms and legs. So what did she had, like a parasite? Or? It was a rare form. Of, they never had discovered the actual bacteria. They said it was a rare gram-negative soil-based bacteria. They had antibiotics flown in from Australia and everything. because. Um, and, but the reason, they started pumping her full of antibiotics almost immediately. And obviously then identifying it became harder. Probably if they'd taken blood, they may have done it. But whatever, it was a... Things were happening so fast anyways. And they yeah. told me literally her chances <clears throat> of survival were slim, and if she did survive, she'd probably lose her, uh, her arms and her legs. So, you know, imagine I'm in. I mean, and then it was actually uh, James Batt, who was at that time the CEO of All Laguna, contacted me and said, John, is it the 
he's on the board of Bangkok Lucatis. It's a great hospital. It's a great local hospital, but you need to get her out of the, you know, to a, a major with this sort of situation. So I con luckily was in short covered contact to the insurance company, and he suggested Singapore. They want ideally wanted to send to Bur- uh, Bumrungrad in Bangkok. Yeah. So I James Bat said, yeah. Fine. So after it was about four days on. At that time, they said the chances of survival are going down. You know, heart had stopped, and they'd have to bring her back a few times. She's in an induced coma at this point. Yeah, she's in induced coma. I mean, she's on every machine you can imagine. Yeah. From, you know, liver, kidney machines. You know, uh, obviously fully incubated. Everything. And so, yeah, James said, "Great." So they literally sent a plane down with like a mobile ICU unit basically they do with a former Thai Air Force doctor on like board and Doctors his, Without Borders airplane yeah they come on yeah, the yeah. plane they come down with their own yeah amazing technology I mean it's like almost identical machines that were in the ward but it's right in the plane miniature yeah and literally they strap these things they have the nurses there with them strapped to themselves changing all the plugs it's torrential rain that night. They had to wait for the police to give the all clear that the road was clear, so they could get up there quickly because they didn't want to be uh, stuck in traffic with these things on. Yeah, got her up there straight through into the airport onto the plane where they then it's like a purpose-built ICU unit, flying ICU unit in effect. It flies all over Asia, taking mm. patients here to to Bumrungrab, and again unplugged everything into it. Jill used to complain after it was the only time she's ever been in a private jet oh, no champagne and you nothing about it there you go so yeah i was sat with her get there straight into the hospital and again different situation there i mean they work it different ways they have like a general practitioner he was actually a Sikh who was in charge of the case but they bring in all these specialists i think she had about 12 specialists you name it blood everything surgeon and they have conferences yeah and we're literally within what worried me, I think, with Bangkok Phuket, I think it was the night before, there was literally no doctor on duty. The doctor, in her case, had had to go off to another hospital. And I was shot. Well, what happens? You know, don't worry. If it, we need him, we can call him. Um, whereas at Bongrengrad, literally, in that first night, there were, you name it, one doctor after the other. And this is the middle of the night, two or three in the morning. By this time, specialists coming in and whatever. But she was in a coma at that point. Literally, and I mean, her legs were black, her arms were yeah huge patches of and blood. this is because the blood is flowing again to to, to pre- it's going to pre- yeah. yeah basically i think the 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 clots you know it die or basically in the, the small veins as the blood goes this is what my understanding yeah a doctor could tell exactly what had happened but i just know the basics yeah. of it yeah. uh so that's what happened and yeah but fortunately yeah they were able to save her life um they couldn't save her legs they did manage to save her arms. I mean, she has permanent scarring on it. I mean, you know, the bad scarring did affect. But um, she had mobility. Use, but she had decent mobility in it. Um, but then the second sort of twist of the story is is that um, she was determined to get out of hospital for Christmas. Uh, this was early October, and uh, they wanted, so she insisted she was leaving, and more or less um, we made arrangements for her to be uh, again. She was, uh, uh, you know, taken from, uh, from from there to the hospital. Yeah, and then to, to back to Phuket, um, not in a private plane, but but she, so she was able to be transferred, and then she was transferred, s- stabilized. She was, over, yeah, she was yeah. stabilized. She was able to go. Yeah, 
enough to to travel on. Uh, yeah, I mean, they took her ambulance to the plane, and she was the insurance company paid for business class seats, and she had a nurse with her, just whatever. But everything was fine. Yeah. And then she had all the piles of whatever. And the plan was for her to go back. She was in a wheelchair, obviously. All, in the last sort of week, she'd been having, working with a, uh, the, with a prosthetic company okay. in Bangkok Is who were like, coming in to, yeah. to look at her. But they have to wait until the legs, they have to bandage the legs, they taper to yeah. get it to, before they can do a final fitting. So this was, she came out, I think it was December the 23rd. She was determined to cook Christmas. She always cooked Christmas dinner for... Friend, particularly uh, our single male friends who would, you know, yeah. she cooked for come round. So they had a Christmas dinner basically, and we had a you know, 11, 12 people there, I think. Which she's she's on kneeling on a wheelchair and whisking around and all the rest of it. Um, then of course, what happened? December the twenty sixth, tsunami. Yes. So um, normally on Boxing Day, we went to a local bar. Uh, the landlord there used to put on a thing for his regulars. Now, meanwhile, you're in Laguna, so you probably Boat Avenue doesn't even exist at this point. No, no, Boat Avenue no, didn't. No. The pub that we went to is all gone now and changed, but it's yeah. uh, nevertheless, that's what happened at the time. And we got a call, actually, from uh, our maid. We had a, used to come and work in the house. She didn't live in, but she used to come and work a few days a week, part-time cleaning. She called us and said, John, are you okay? We said, yeah, why? What's up? Oh, there's been a big wave, as she put it. And, you know, I said, really? I mean, we were actually, but we were sat on our balcony and we could see people playing golf. People, the gardeners in the golf course still working, everything normal. I said, no, everything's fine here, you know. Uh, but it, it never reached that area? It never came up onto the land? Oh, no, no, no. Nowhere near there, no. Okay. But we was sort of... Uh, but it's about a kilometre back by... Yeah, the, you're still so, quite close to the ocean there. Yeah, and I mean, people did feel it. I mean, we never remember feeling it, but there you go, when it happened, the earthquake. But yeah. we didn't at that point. So I thought, no, we heard anything. You know, we thought, well, on our way to... Back to on our way to the, well, we'll go and drive down to the... Could you see if we can see anything? We went by a, a very popular restaurant that's, again, no longer exists now, but did at the time. There used to be lots of restaurants down there. This was quite a famous one. And there was some damage. They were cleaning up, putting the tables back, and they had some fish tank at the front. It was broken glass, but nothing much. So we heard it must have been a high wave that, you know, end of story. And it was only, you know, people when we got to the pub, nobody had mentioned tsunami at this stage. Yeah, nobody probably knows the word no, either. This is now sort of early lunchtime, early afternoon. It was like a lunchtime thing. And then we got a call from Margot, who's a Dutch lady. She said, John, you know... Um, Leone's been killed mm. by this by this sorry, what? You know, that was you know, that was it. Leone was Jill's best friend and she was a volunteer, quite well known on the island, lived in Rawai. And that was helping you kind of at the beginning. She used to help us, she used to think she was a volunteer and we'd have mobile clinics down there. And she'd gone to the beach where they had a little bungalow they used to rent out. Which Rawai or Yeah, this was uh Newey Beach. Yeah, Newey. near yeah. Naiha. Yeah. And She'd gone down and she got, literally, the house, we went after the house was demolished when we went down for the funeral and everything, but she got hit by the second wave and was killed with two waves. Yeah. So, I mean, that was it. And then we turned on the TV and saw what was happening, obviously. And volunteers we had were staying down in Bangtao. A lot of them used to stay, we had a volunteer vet there, staying at these group. Gone now, Bang Bangtao Lagoon bungalows. 
and they would have been on the roof and things of bungalows. We had no idea if sort of up the southern hours. part of Bangtao. I heard that the most of the, the bungalows yeah. did they got flooded up to the second floors. Yeah, yeah, and so they were on the roof, whatever, and they had to get so because we got him and he came, stayed with us, and one thing or yeah. another. Um, and then obviously, tuning the news to find out what was happening, and then we found out that okay, what that obviously we knew. We realised that okay, Phuket had been hit, but that Pangna was the really bad place. Up and by Kalak. Yeah, and things seemed to be more or less in. Con- went down the next day. I mean, all sorts. You see, the damage at Kamala, for example, was severe. A lot of people got yeah. killed in Kamala. <clears throat> then we, th- we were told that the issue with Kalak was horrendous, and they needed help there. So we, I drove up there with some other uh, people, and Jill came as well. Jill dropped off at the hospital in Takwapa because she could at least speak with people and counsel people. I think she knew what it was. She didn't know what it was to live through an army, but she knew what it was to yeah. lose her legs. And a lot of people were had lost limbs and a lot of people were in desperate states. So she did that. And we were literally and in she's, the centre. she's dealing with a lot of the Farangs? Or yeah, or, foreigners, basically. Yeah. Tourists, yeah. yeah. So she was talking to tourists in hospital. And how... Uh, how what, what hospital was this? This was the main hospital in Takwapar. It's actually the same hospital that was featured in that film. This is pretty much up. Then that's like that's north the northern of, part north of, of Kaulak. North of Kaulak, yeah. yeah. We and were in the centre of Kaulak. I mean, I had to go there. Came this up. is where the boat came right up. This is we, yeah, where the boat came up, and there was a, like this big open, just totally flattened. I mean, and the boat was behind us. Yeah, and in the centre of this clear area, there were literally hundreds of bodies stacked up. Yeah. And so what we ended up doing, we formed part of it, we formed a team and um, we would be wrapping bodies. So what what you did was, there was no body bags at this time. In fact, I got a call from Alistair, who was then the editor of the Phuket Gazette, um, Alistair Forbes, and, he wrote, you know, what's needed up there? And I said, well, to be honest, the needs, what would really be big help is body bags because this is a, a very slow, laborious process. We had big rolls of plastic and then rolls of muslin. And mm. so what you did, you had to literally lift uh, a body off the pile, let, cut out a piece of plastic, lift a body off the pile, and then put a piece of muslin on top of that. Body off the pile onto it. Quite often this sounds pretty horrible, but you'd have to break arms and legs that were stuck up all over the pipe because of rigor mortis had set in. And, then, and the heat and the stench. Yeah, the stench was... I mean, yeah, we used to use um, tiger balm. You used to put tiger balm on your yeah, nose. Yeah, because this too. happened midday, so the heat's come out. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, literally, to be honest, the smell, you know, stayed with you. You'd wear rubber gloves, but the smell, you could smell it on yourself uh, even when you've gone home. And so we would be doing this, and this was a group of us from Phuket. And um, we, would, uh, we were doing this, and then, uh, I mean, it was... Talk about getting hardened to stuff. Yeah, you, you do. But, I mean, yeah, because, I mean, it was, you know, everything from huge, I mean, ve- some very big men, Western men, you know, almost about 20-odd stone, I mean, bloated as well, and insides hanging out and all this carrying on, and you try lift them up, and the skin literally is peeling off them as you're lifting yeah. them, you know. And how many people were you working with at the time? Well, in our group, there would there'll be six of us to a group generally, or four, and then but sometimes with a guy like that, you need a hand because you'd, they're heavy to lift for pile onto yeah. another thing. Then you would volunteer, Thai girl volunteer would be cutting some hair off, putting a number on it, and then we would be wrap, wrapping the body literally, tying it up, 
and then carrying that then to another pile underneath a load of tents mm. which were there being piled up and then they were piled on there um, and marked up were numbered and, and they were identified a lot of these people or was that very difficult this was no this at this time all we were doing was they would this was ready for dna testing yeah that's why they're taking hair i mean bear in mind we were all you know we're also at that time um uh, involved also i mean the guy who was Heath friend of ours he was the head groundsman at the um the resort, sorry, the uh, Lot Palm, the, the big golf course. Blue Canyon? Blue Canyon, yeah. yeah. So he was the head groundsman there, and um, they took up pumps and whatever. They're pumps, big pumps, because, I mean, one of the hotels that um, we visited, we went to see with him, see if he, he could help him. But there was a, it only just opened. That's It literally only just opened that season. It had the biggest. The Blue Canyon just opened. No, 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 no the hotel in Cowlap. Maybe uh, the and it was just north of the center. Ma- not the Marriott, not up that. No, I've got the name. It's now it's now open again with a different name, and it's a big hotel group at the time. But it's, it it was more or less destroyed. Yeah, it had it was famous for having the biggest pool in I think Asia swimming pool open swimming it opened this, and literally the a lot of it was surrounded by bungalows. And it was I mean literally it was desolation, and you could see people. There was a Russian lady just looking. The signs of her family and again there were bodies that had been swept underneath these i think some of them probably never were recovered because the flooding and everything what happened it got flooded underneath but he pumps there were there to try and pump all this water flooded out. underneath the pool get underneath the, the underneath literally the foundations yeah, yeah yeah um and this all flooded you know from everything else and you could see all this like christmas wrapping paper and things it was, you know, yeah, was. but I mean, so um, we're ju- doing what we could to help generally. We did this, you know, we were up and down there for about three days. In the meantime, Margot was, Herbert, she had been getting dogs from uh, Ireland and getting, we were getting inundated with people from uh, vets overseas, vets and whatever, to see if they could help. And what we did at this point, after about three days, you had the first I would say, proper relief teams coming in, who came in from uh, Taiwan, I think it was, and Israel and places like that. Israel was sending body bags over, and you had proper teams coming in from overseas. Yeah. Left it to them, and I went back to the dogs, you know, other people like um, Ian, who's been organising it. Were there major deaths with animals as well that you had to deal with? Well, this is a strange thing. I mean, if you look at, um, I mean, if you say in terms of, it was lucky in a way it was a Sunday because if you went to um, Kamala, the temp- temple there at Kamala, which is right near the front of the beach, was heavily damaged. There's a school there. That school would have been, had hundreds of children in it. It was closed being Sunday. Mm. It would have been uh, probably huge death toll amongst local children. A few monks were killed. There are stories, a lot of stories regarding animals. A lot of the dogs went up the steps on the bell tower before the tsunami hit. There are stories of people seeing snakes going up, you know, heading away. Before it hit. Yeah, before it hit. There's obviously the well-known story in Laguna of the baby elephant that picked up this uh, Swedish girl, which is Danish, and carried her off away from the sea. Mm. And, um, you know, that's sort of quite a famous story. And the guy there wanted to, the elephant 
afterwards and blah 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 so there's stories about animals people talk about animals having a sixth sense you know there's certainly evidence to suggest that even just from that that yeah. there is something in something whether yeah. or whether they just you know they felt this obviously the earthquake or whatever or felt something <clears throat> that prompted them to move away um same as was a girl you know who had been studying just been studying about earthquakes or about tsunamis at school and she recognised the signs, I think, down in uh, Laguna area and sort of shouted to people, you know, there was a start. Because when, obviously, as you know, the sea gets drawn out. Yeah. It's like, you know, like a normal wave. Sea's coming out and in. And the bigger, the more it goes out, the bigger the wave. So you've got these pictures of fish and everything. And sadly, people were running out onto the beach to collect fish because there were all these fish flamping about. Ah, and they have and no they, idea what's about. Yeah. No, and they all got killed, obviously, as the wave came in, particularly in Cowlack. So that was sort of, but um, let's, I mean, unless you have any specific more on that, I would say yeah, something yeah. good comes out of something bad. And what came good out of that? In I mean, terms well. of soy dog, right, in that it put soy dog more on the map because people obviously wanted, you know, I mean, we, we didn't have time. I mean, we were working around the clock. I mean, Jill was still in a wheelchair at the time, but she was managing mobile teams. I was managing another one down in Caron. We had so many vets. We had over 50 vets plus nurses coming at, from all over the place, mm. from even from Japan and from Europe and from America and Canada over that period of time, wanting to volunteer the services. So we were uh, inundated. And we also we got people inquiring, how can I help? You know, can I donate? So obviously people were donating as well. So the first time that happened, we didn't make, we didn't raise a lot of funds. I mean, by any means from through the tsunami. But a lot of big organisations did, as you're probably aware. One of the things they do is... Like the Red Cross and... Yeah, but also animal welfare organisations, the big ones. Like, it no longer exists, so I couldn't name them, but it yep. was called Whisper World Society Protection of Animals, who we got a grant from. They told us they raised more money from the tsunami, huge amounts of money than did, but it also affected their programmes. They raised vast sums. And they had to, because a lot of it was restricted, had to give some of it back you know, to directly. So they set up what they called a tsunami recovery fund and they asked local foundations across the Indian Ocean if they would become member societies. That's how it was formed at those days, no longer exist in that way, to become members and they would give us a grant. So we became a, a member society and they gave us what they called a tsunami recovery grant, which was, as I recall, three million baht at the time or something. And... The idea it was over or would be over two years. I think it was more a bit more than that. But that was enough to kind of kickstart this foundation. To At that time, that was enough. Scale. Yeah, I mean, consider our budget now is well over twenty million baht a, a, a month. Yeah, those it seemed little, but at that time it was enough. We were able to employ two vets full time, and we were able to employ two teams of dog, well, two dog catchers, sorry, and so and we rented this building, this disused restaurant in. Uh, Phuket, town? Phuket town yeah. it's sort of on the way to Kosire not far from uh, where you go over you know where the harbour is etc and it was a big building but uh, so we set up a clinic there um, that immediately is where dogs started being dumped as well because well again a bit like now with COVID people left and they were dumping would they dogs. just show up and, and bring dogs to the doorstep and no, walk generally away? what happened was was that dogs we were picking dogs in need but I mean 
people we put a fence round, obviously to contain sure, but yeah. the dogs were kept inside. It was a huge building. Uh, but people were throwing them over the fence and whatever. In fact, one died from a broken back uh, where people were trying to, you know, jump dogs, thinking, oh, we take care of them. So we ended up anyway, at the end of the day, we were there for oof, many months doing this. But we ended up with over 100 dogs. And we needed at that time to, uh, in terms of, well, that we can't keep 100 dogs here, what are we going to do? Now, Margot at that time, sadly, she was still heavily involved, but she became quite ill. Uh, I think probably a lot, partly also with strain of what had been of the previous yeah. year, which had been very heavy and needed to step down. So she uh, actually left food cat in due cost. Uh, so that left sort of Jill and I to sort of carry on. And uh, we had, a, by that time, being already formed a, um, a Thai foundation. With a Thai board, predominantly Thai board. But you're registered with the Thai, uh, like the Thai government. Yes, you, you're, a Thai you have your, your international memberships. I'm assuming. Well, we're by then we are fundraising. Yeah. I, at that point, I'm yeah. doing the fundraising. Yeah. I'm sort of internationally starting to raise funds through, you know, emails, Facebook, and whatever. Yeah. So I'm starting to, you know, it's starting to become better organized. Still very small, but we are starting. And I'm applying for grants from large foundations and so forth to expand the work we're doing that's how it started and how quickly did it expand from um your location in phuket town to let's say your next what was your next major milestone well what it was what we moved then is that in 2000 and um, this was so basically bear in mind we're talking now obviously we've gone into 2006 okay so what after the tsunami all these this was all in 2005 and then we're in this building into 2006 this is when we had to move and Jill and I we contacted through um, contacts the Department of Livestock who also in 2000 approximately 2003 had built this uh, what is now known as the Phuket Dog Shelter I think they call it Dog Pound or whatever and where, where is that located that's on the main highway before you get to the airport turn off so after Talang but before near where before you get to the PTT station on a bend, it's and the it still system. exists, and it still exists. It's known as the Dog Pound. Okay, we had raised funds to again as a fundraising effort to outside a whisper to to and suggested proposed to them that we go in there. The place was a mess. They'd built it. They hadn't built it properly. There's no infrastructure. There's just... Well, they built these sort of huge sort of two big runs and things. They, the fences were inadequate. They'd built gaps between the wall and the fence where smaller dogs could get under. The higher fences, the bigger dogs could just hop over at will. It was right on a main road, so a lot of dogs would run out and yeah. get splattered on the road. So it was totally unsafe, not only for the dogs, but for passing motorcycles and cars, etc. It was a mess. They'd also turned it, they'd not put any drainage in. So where this uh, walled, it became like a bund, if you know what a bund is, almost yep. like, so it filled with water. And so the dogs ended up being squashed in the top because it was on a slope and a small little bit of land when it was, when it was raining. It was a mess. There'd no clinic, there'd no way to treat dogs. It was literally a couple of old ladies were feeding but the dogs. But now it's a pound in which people are dropping off their dogs or they're being called upon to pick they up dogs in that to, sense? Not they, they particularly don't, but I'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. But it, So we 
basically raised funds and suggested that we move in there. We could help. We, we needed one of the runs for our docks, and so one of the bigger dongs, which we would then take responsibility for and build and whatever. But we would also we'd build a clinic for them. We'd build put drainage in. We'd ex- put the proper fencing round to secure it so it became safe, and uh, did all that. It cost you know what that cost us about three million baht at the yeah. time. Going back in those days, so we did that. It took several months to do and whatever. We'd moved in. Shortly afterwards, they started talking about well, it was inappropriate for an NGO to be running a government facility. Now, now we're getting in 2007? Yeah. 2007, okay. <laughs> and so it was over that period of time, and they sort of, we asked for time, but they said we needed to find somewhere else. So in effect, we'd done what they wanted, but they wanted us out. Mm. And I think they didn't like us interfering. We'd actually set up an education centre as well. We're already, Jill and one of our Thai volunteers, already bringing children here to there to teach them. We'd set up like an agility with other volunteers, an agility centre, so we're already training dogs and getting dogs, uh, starting to get a few dogs adopted and this sort of thing. But, but this place, was it th- all Thai run or were there Farang? Uh, it was all Thai run, all, all but I mean, we were, um, yeah, I mean, we were there every day. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, but I mean, uh, and there were foreign volunteers coming in. A lot of foreign volunteers were coming and helping uh at that time uh more from around internationally or from the island from the island yeah. and uh, and also from volunteers from pangna coming in and also visiting you started to get this visiting thing. the the like kind of tourism, tourism volunteer, yeah which right? so it started at that point so we get first ones were coming and visiting low in numbers but coming so it was happening and soy dog name was starting to grow mm. so but to cut a long story short, and again, I get my dates mixed up. Well, the, yeah, this is kind of the transition because I'm assuming it's the Maikau area. So this is where you're transitioning from this kind of dog right. shelter location to your current. We have to move out. Yeah. So our president, who is Dr. Who at that time was uh, Dr. Sushan, a local vet, also owned land in Maikau. Um, he knew some land that the owner was trying to rent, and he said it would be suitable. So... We went to look at it, and we thought, "Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> we were in a dire straits. It was. It was no. There was one actually incomplete house there, nearly complete, an old cattle shed, and that was it. Our little block of like four rooms. So are we talking one ride, two rye? Oh, it was several rye. Okay, and there was also a, a pond, a lake in the middle of it included. That's about. I think that original land was about seven rye. So he offered to rent us. So we rented it from him. We got builders in and we built initial dog runs quite in a hurry and we built proper mm-hmm. runs in and so then we could we got they moved the dogs in there so we were renting that land initially again to cut a long story over the years it's gradually i mean the growth of if you imagine the graph soy dog has been like that and then in the last sort of five years it's taken very off. steep in terms of purchasing, in terms of growing your land, like how, what have you gone to from? Everything, you've everything. gone from seven I mean, ride to where are, where are well you Well, now today? we're about, what are we now? It's more than double. I think it's probably about, as of the latest land bought, it's probably 15 or something like that. But, I mean, what we did first, obviously, we we actually had a campaign to buy that initial land. We built the, We bought half of it. Yeah. Then we bought the other half. Okay, so you own it now. Oh yeah, we own okay. all the land. We yeah. own that land, and then we 
negotiated with the same guy who owned next land yep. to buy that he got a bit let's say he wanted too much money for the last bit but then we bought land behind which adjoins it yep. this year so because we've had to buy more because you see for expansion so he'll have it yeah, it's not cheap land in Phuket anywhere, and it's yeah, not. And, and, uh, it's expensive, and, people. and prices going up. But at least you're out in yeah. Macau, where it's a little, it's a little less it's, expensive. It's a, it's it's a still, little less, but it's still expensive. Yeah, it's still I mean, expensive. people said, "Yeah, and we could have bought land in the middle of nowhere, somewhere else in Thailand, very cheaply." But you still got to get your staff there. Yeah, you still got our visitors. You know, you've got to have, there and you've got to have your catchment area, and that was our catchment. And area. it needs to be a. L- little bit attractive for the volunteers as well they exactly. don't want to be and in the volunteers middle of the jungle became important yeah. i mean in terms of volunteers i mean we get now of course it's stopped i mean we've got local volunteers i mean from countries people in fact we've had quite a lot of russians coming who they look should put it out on their their russian sort of facebook pages and we've had yeah. quite a few russians regularly coming up as they come here we've also got uh started to get a few now people from overseas who've come on the sandbox still small numbers same yeah. as tourist numbers are small and they they came on the sandbox specifically to maybe uh, do thailand volunteer volunteer tourism to yeah. help you guys out well we would have probably <clears throat> normally before covid we would probably have certainly in high season 40 or 50 volunteers any week any day any of the week so and they will be there walking dogs and whatever. But the bonus really also is they f- they became also on the way back. They could be flight volunteers for taking dogs to new homes that had become adopted. They also became, a lot of them, adopters themselves because you imagine, particularly if you're spending, you know, most of them are spending at least two weeks, some of them end up spending two years, you know, or more. But yeah. they would get attached to particular dogs and they want to adopt that dog themselves. So that increased adoptions. We focus a lot on local adoptions now, but generally speaking, um, it's it's sad in a way. I mean, the king of the old king of Thailand, you know, the, the late king, bless him. He he, in his book on his own street dog, exhort in the forward exhorts Thai people to adopt dogs, not yeah. to buy expensive pedigree breeds. But Did sadly, you ha- have a relationship with him at any point? No, not no, directly. Kinda, no. no, I mean, the current king has donated food to us as sort yeah. of as his symbolic. Uh, We've had important visitors come round, but I've been not personal contact. Yeah, um, and I've met the one of the one of the king's daughters in terms of um, we we got a, an award from a thing to do with rabies in Bangkok, so yeah. she she presided over. But in terms of actual relationship with her own family, not directly. That's yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, he preached that, and so we tried to get that message across the time. Sadly, most want Western pedigree breeds, small breeds, etc., or things like as you've mentioned, huskies or whatever. Yeah, without even understanding the care these dogs need. And the reality is, most of them, yeah, there are a few reputable breeders in Thailand, but most come from pretty awful puppy mills where they're churned out, and a lot of them are not good examples. And a lot of them develop breeders for profit. Yeah, breeders for problems. What was the the catalyst? So you said that in around 2015. soy dogs steadily grew and then in the past five six years it just exploded what was the reasoning behind that i think probably because um well a number of factors i mean certain certainly things do it started to grow probably before that i mean our involvement in the dog meat trade 
The dog meat trade, I mean, I've already told you, we yeah. do not agree with buying dogs or whatever, but the reality is a lot of people have got involved in it for that motive because they've found that they can raise huge amounts of money by rescuing dogs. Do you dogs. think by you're, you were getting involved in that, that gave exposure to that your brand a and then a lot of people started to hear about yeah, what you were exactly. doing? That then in terms of Bangkok, for example, the Bangkok floods of 2012, which happened at the same time as we were involved, we were heavily involved in that. We were involved in rescuing dogs in terms of the flood. We set up a temporary shelters uh, down with, inter with wildlife, wildlife friends of Thailand who had their huge properties down in uh, near Hua Hin. So we were evacuating dogs that had been stranded. And at, relocating. Uh, relocating them. So that also got a lot of media coverage uh, internationally as well. So that, again, is getting your name up so more and more people were getting to know about us. And more and more people and now it's were just, donating. It's and growing. so it, it grows and it's grown and grown on that. It's constantly, obviously, you're trying to maintain that growth. Currently, it is growing. Sorry, I'm swinging my arms about it. No, no, don't worry. Um, <laughs> it does, um, yeah, it's it's hard work maintaining that, that growth, particularly when you're not doing the sort of things that people, like I mentioned, the dog meat trade. Because yeah. when, it, when you're talking about advocacy, you know, and even sterilization is not the sort of thing people want to adopt, which is to necessarily donate to. Yeah, organisations will. I mean, we part of, half our operation in Bangkok, our mobile operation is funded by a UK-based charity, big one called Dogs Trust. Well, it's Dog Trust International now. They're a big UK-based charity. but um, They finance 50% of our mobile teams in Bangkok. And we're looking next year to extend that from six to eight teams. Um, and we get foundations, which is going to foundation, we just heard this week, who, are going to who will look to finance the setting up of a 10th team to work in the south of Thailand. So you get, but these are more foundations who understand what you're trying to do. So there, you guys are working street, together almost yeah. as a community as well. Yeah, but most of our donations come from literally, yeah, we do get major, well, yeah, we do get large donations, but most is from, you know, we have sort of thousands of small donors who donate on a monthly basis, and we have programs for them, things like sponsor a dog. So dogs that are never going to be adopted at the shelter, people sponsor. They understand, obviously, it's a bit like the children's sponsors. You know, you can sponsor yeah. a child in Africa. So a large percentage of your your, your donors, they're individual people, but it's a, that accumulation. Oh, that's majority. Do you think that has anything to do with social media and the, the uprising since pretty much 2015? Everything. I mean, that is basically why you've got that huge growth is social media. We have, I mean, so what do you we have a volunteer, on? I mean, who, who uh, you know, who is in charge of our digital, you know, digital fundraising on social media. Yeah. And he, if you like, we were the, probably the first in terms <clears> of animal welfare charities back in, sort of going back to what, 2000, even before 2015, but starting it to actually see the, the, the if you like, the, the prospects of, using social media for growth in the charity in the non-profit sector and most of these these individuals um coming in and contacting you to offer their sponsorship do you know are they coming through your youtube your facebook your facebook. instagram facebook primarily for us facebook facebook yeah definitely facebook i mean you look at expanding it but at the moment facebook is still i'm not saying it won't 
you know, we also have an Instagram channel. Yeah. We also, yeah, we do have a YouTube channel, YouTube but it, we don't, not many, we don't get many views on YouTube. We don't promote it. It's more, it's, they're there because we're promoting, the videos we're showing are actually getting views yeah, I'm starting on. to show the dog, you're starting to promote the, the dogs, like the individual dogs. Yeah, but they're getting watched. The views are through um, Facebook through our website or yes. links to our website rather than through YouTube yeah. because you're obviously looking, I mean, for people to come and see it and there's a link there whereby then they can, yeah, I want to help that dog and so they will donate through that. And I mean, if people think it's, but bear in mind, any charity can only do, and people find, oh, for example, fundraising a dirty word, you know, whatever, you can only do as much as the funds you raise. Mm-hmm. And we Soy Dog could still be going along as it was um, 18 years ago or whatever, going from hand to mouth, I'm trying to support things from my own pocket or whatever, without, you know, and just going on as a lot of people do. And they just do that and continue without thinking about raising any funds. We get asked all the... We get... more. Well, how many times I've forgotten how many people in Thailand have asked us if we will take over a group that they have started. And all of a sudden, it's too much hard work. And they found, yes, it is hard work. Well, especially if and they the don't money, have the, their, their foundations and their, their procedures set up in their own operations, and you've got to do that from scratch. It'd be a nightmare. Yeah, it's, so they're sort of and asking us to take it over. And we yeah. actually always, sorry, generally, no, I'm sorry, because it's just handing over their problems that they've now got. Yeah. You know, they've probably got some land which they don't own, and all of a sudden, yeah, the own landowners blackmail them or something, they do up the yeah. rent and this sort of thing. And they've ended up with without any sort of thinking about it. And what we've tried to do, we do it... You've got to... You've got to run it almost of a business mentality, Yeah, to be honest, if you want to be successful. And in terms... Because you can only do as much as the money... You've that's a fact, you know. Everything you do costs money, and whether it's ending the dog meat trade, you know, and you having to, uh, you know, advertise things, and you having to give rewards to authorities, to running a shelter, and land it. I had, I actually don't want a shelter, you know. What I mean, but the shelter would be, it's such a drain on resources because sheltering dogs paying, you know, all the staff to care for them, the food and everything else, is a huge drain on what I see as the core, which is solving the underlying issue, which is sterilising. You know, I would like to see soy dogs sterilising dogs in every province in Thailand, large scale, because in that sort of thing, we could solve the problem in no time at all. But so much of our income has to go on... Yeah, treatment and whatever, because at the same time, we will get dogs in for sterilising that, no, we can't return to the streets. We cannot... Re- dogs we keep are dogs that people have... A, you know, you get somebody abandoning a dog has no idea how to survive. You know, you see shih tzus and yeah. they're just dumped. You know, and the things are probably half blind because of... You know, because half these shih tzus that are bred from... They're all coming from puppy mills. They're I mean, all full yeah. of faults. They've got eye it's, issues. It's still a business you, you, you have to run. If, if your main goal is the sterilization of the dogs, I mean, you still have a marketing budget. You have your team. You have operations. You have logistics. Yeah. You have your, your vets. I mean, it's... it's a, and if you're saying you, if you have over 300 people, it's a large operation to build. My, I had a question, though. It's... Uh, what percentage of... 
charities or, or foundations that start actually succeed? Um, it's a good question. I've not studied that, but I mean, certainly in Thailand, the if I go back to when I first moved to Thailand, the ones I knew at the time non exist today. Are those that exist at so the time? The animal welfare charities I'm talking about, none of them existed. And there was, I mean, I'm talking a few of the main ones. There was one in, um, uh, very good one in Chiang Mai, very good one in Bangkok, one in uh, uh, Hua Hin. And none of them exist anymore? or None you... of those exist. Why, why do you think that is? Because they went on the basically, because I think the founder, this is the other thing, of course, the founder generally is the person that starts it and the founder person that carries it. And one of the things, Jill, when she was still alive, and this is going back a few years, we're determined to do, they talk about things like founder's syndrome. Now, I mean, okay, I'm still heavily involved and people accuse me of interfering too much, I'm quite sure. But the reality is, Soy Dog is now in a situation, and I explain it how we've done that. But, I mean, you know, Soy Dog is now set up as Soy Dog International-based, and the office for that is in Switzerland. There's no physical office. We use a... Uh, Understood. A third party. But our board, it's, 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 found, it's in Switzerland. Because as much as I, we have a... Soy Dog Thai. I mean, we have seven foundations now across the world. There's Soy Dog USA, Soy yep. Dog UK, Canada, you know, uh, Australia. To allow you to operate in those areas. That's, more for, yeah. that's basically for raising funds for our yeah. work in Asia. Understood. But the reality is the control is with Soy Dog International now because I can never be sure that down the line, that our Thai board here is, you know, it has to be predominantly Thai. It's great. You know, but they are, you know, I can't see years after I've gone, 20 years down the line, yeah. what could happen. I've seen rogue boards on other charities come in and make a mess of things. So the reality is, and I would foresee in the future Soy Dog doing more work, far more work outside of Thailand. And, I, you know, that needs to be controlled somewhere else. So Soy Dog International, if you like, is the mothership. And they are, they... Soy Dog Thailand now has to apply for grants from Soy Dog International. Correct. And, okay, Soy Dog Thailand has its own, it's quite new, has its own fundraising department. And what they raise is Soy Dog Thailand. It's, that belongs to Soy Dog but Thailand. But you're not using things like Weeboon or... No, we would anything. hope that Soy Dog Thailand would become financially independent in due course. Uh, and Soy Dog International can go on to expand its work into doing more and more in other countries as we yeah. grow. Understood. But at the moment, it's very, very dependent, obviously, on... Um, uh, and is this a big part of your, your success, being able to uh, spread out your, your division so that the control is, you know, you're not so... All your eggs aren't in one basket in Thailand. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, yeah. bear in mind, we, we raise about 5% of our funds in Thailand and virtually nothing in Phuket. I mean, you think we're a Phuket-based organisation... We get virtually no donations in Phuket. Yeah. And despite the fact that our work is, <laughs> so much of our work over the years has been to benefit the Phuket yeah. businesses, and because if they like, if they, even they don't understand it, the tourist trade in Phuket has benefited greatly because they think tourists like seeing starving dogs and not dogs lying carcasses and cat lying dead on the streets. 
they're wrong. And yeah, people, and, uh, I know people today say, oh, I could never come to Thailand because I would find it too upsetting. And okay, and I write to them now, I said, don't worry, you can come to Phuket, it's not upsetting, okay? And you'll come to, if you come to Soy Dog, you'll find an uplifting experience, not an upsetting experience. So we can say that to people and we're, we're bringing in, I mean, Soy Dog, on, if you look at TripAdvisor, on things to do on TripAdvisor, outside of things like places to visit, outside of things like beaches yeah. or diving, generic things, you'll see Soy Dog is right up there at the top and we bring in, we bring in a lot of tourists. A lot of tourists, and they, they come in, and do you have a shop there as well? In which yeah, they we can, have merchandise yeah. shop. I mean, we don't yeah. sell the merchandise such. They can make a donation, and yeah. we give them. We have to do up. Yeah. We have, obviously, we have merchandise online internationally. Yeah. That is a business, actually. It's yeah. um, run for the UK. It has to be a company because of its turnover, but it's it's under the, all profits. It's a non-profit business with all the profits actually going to Soy Dog UK. Understood. Because that's where it's based. So you're saying people that were not successful, they have founder syndrome. Now, are you meaning that it's The founder goes and nobody wants to take it over. Okay. And they, they no longer feel they can do it. And mm. quite often they are worn down. I mean, they get so, they become ill, you know, they're worn down because it takes them over the, it does take over your life. I mean, people contact me now and say, I'm thinking I want to help animals and I'm thinking of doing what you're doing and setting example. I jokingly say don't. Yeah. Then I provide that. I say don't unless you are prepared to donate your whole life to it because it will take over your life. I mean, at our, yeah, I mean, I work generally probably even today 12 hours a, and have done. Still 12 hours a day. Even today I've tried, I mean, okay, I try to take Sundays off now. I try to boom. I'll still look at briefly emails when I get up just to clear any important ones. But it's not unusual for me to get two or 300 emails a day. And Do you see yourself stepping back anytime soon? I've stepped back. <laughs> still working 12 hours but a day. I'm still having to do stuff yeah. because people still call on me to do things. But the thing is, I'm educating other people to have more and more to take over. And there'll come a time when, I'll, when I'm saying, no, you handle that. You can, you know, I got a, some today and he was somebody, you know, oh, what about, the, you know, I said, you can handle that. You've been, do it, you know, yeah. go on with it. You know, if you want a question, ask me, but do it. And it's same like with our CEO and whatever. I, I cop, you know, copied her in on emails and stuff. I still, I've given myself certain tasks to do. I still work closely with major donors. So, I mean, okay. major private donors, trusts, you know, particularly in whatever, who are donating significant amounts of money. And I send personal thank you letters to every week to have for every major, well, I would call the largest donation that yeah. comes in. That can be running up to, if we have a very successful appeal, up to 70, 80 a week. So that can be a lot of <laughs> a lot of emails. Okay, I can copy-paste things and whatever a lot, but I mean, mm. generally, it's still, I try to tailor them individually. But so do that you can see yourself consistent. stepping away completely at all, or is this going to I don't be, think that will ever happen. That will never happen. No, I mean, they'll probably be, yeah, they'll, not mm. until I... Unless, I mean, I, I do tell everybody I'm going senile because my memory is going terrible. Well, so we'll get you some lion's mane. That's good for they, that. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to help with uh, dementia. and. Well, uh, I, my memory uh, now is, uh, is getting so bad. I do think, yeah, it's yeah. probably, I mean, I'm now 72, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. 72, now 73 coming up. So I could be, I'm getting that age and certainly I need other people to take on board. Yeah. But it is, you know, if I die tomorrow... It's not going to. Soy dog will continue. Well, maybe this product will. will when we get when we the, are, that was the objective. When we get it, we'll we'll ship it to you. Maybe that <laughs> that'll give you another 20, 30 years. But I don't know how happy uh, people there will be. In if I find it works, I'll be buying it. Yeah, don't no, worry. No. Um, um, and 
I, to, to attribute to your success, uh, I'll make a bit of an assumption. Does this also has to have to do with not just yourself, but also Jill in the sense that Jill had that business background. You had that chemical engineering background as a being involved directly in a plant, which brings that, um, the understanding the business side of the operation mixed with the understanding of process, protocol, procedures. Was that the the combination that you would attribute to your success? There should be. And I mean, we haven't really spoken much about Jill other than what happened to her. But I mean, um, and I'll say straight out now, I mean, Jill um, was probably the bravest person I've ever met personally. I mean, and there's a lot of very brave people, more brave people around the world, but I've not met them because people don't realise, I knew, and she never showed it. A lot of people didn't even realise she she was wearing prosthetics. I mean, they think, oh, there's something wrong. Maybe she's got a hip problem or something because she'd move a little bit difficulty. But every night she would, she refused after she got a prosthetics ever to use a wheelchair again. And the only time she ever did was at airports because she twigged that if she said she needed wheelchair assistance, she was whizzed through immigration. Quicker. And... Uh, whatever but as soon as she was through she said to the guy thanks okay that's fine now and so she could get up and walk around but she was um was she the backbone of the operation she she was um she always used to say to you know use me and in terms of funds because she was a people an awful lot of people uh you know really looked up to to what she'd done and what she got through people don't realize i mean the pain she was in every night i used to see her she would literally, I mean, you imagine in this climate. I remember a doctor telling her that when he left, he said, when she left the hospital in Birmingham, saying, you know, you, um, generally speaking, anybody in your situation will not last in prosthetics in Thailand. They, they just stick to a wheelchair because it is so uncomfortable and so painful and difficult. Losing one leg is one thing. Losing two is incredibly difficult. You know, it's not just twice as hard. It's three or four times as because hard. Because of the heat. Well, also, even the pain, when you start, the pain is extremely, <clears throat> it's a lot. Um, and, but he says, I don't think you're going to be, you're going to be the exception. She says, oh, yes. You know, I mean, she was a, people will tell, a very feisty person. I mean, we mm. used to, you know, we'd have a, you know, we could be, have words more often than not. I mean, because we were, we were opposites in some ways. But she was extremely you know, every night she would take these off and you'd have these thick, you'd have these plastic sockets. Inside that, you have these very thick silicon liners that go directly onto the skin to form suction. Mm. On top of that, you then have two, often three socks, thick socks, to form the cushion again. And the sockets would have a little valve in them to actually form a vacuum. And um, incredibly hot to wear. And she would be, she was probably... Um, Product, God, uh, what the name now? But these uh, blister plasters, biggest customer, because every day when she peeled off, she'd be opening up blisters. Yeah. And she peeled off the silicon and slapping blister plasters on. And you know, I'd hear in the bathroom, you know, say, ah, you know, and whatever. She never complained about it. And if anybody would ask her about it, she'd just say, "Oh, it's fine. Yeah, I'm working. I'm, it's okay." And she, uh, she loved working hands-on though. For her, for Jill, it was hands-on. She so was she, always at. She always would be. Mo she was always hands on. She wanted to. She would manage mobile clinics, and she would be out there, and going out with dog catches. Even she would manage them, but she'd go out, and she'd still be picking dogs up, and she would still be working from early morning to late at night, saying, "No, we can do more," and pushing them to do more. We've never had mobile clinics 
that sterilised as many dogs in them as when Jill was managing. You know, she'd get through eight, have them doing 80 dogs a day, uh, easy. So, and that's how she was. But people saw her and were aware of what she had done. And so they admired her. And that, uh, so, yeah, that, that had an impact. And she did a lot of TVs that stuff and whatever, which, again, particularly for you know, American audiences and stuff, got a lot of publicity. You know, she was named... Um, uh, you know, an Asian, the first first Westerner to be named an Asian of the Year. I, saw, I read that, yeah, Asian Channel of the Year. Channel News yeah. Asia in Singapore. Um, and, uh, you know, that was featured, obviously, across Asia and this sort of stuff. And then she won an Animal Hero Award at the uh, bigger animal conference And was she, she running more of the business side when you were running? No, the, it was the other way around, actually, no. Because actually, believe it or not, I do have a yeah, yeah, sound, no, no. you know, I mean, stuff like that. So, although that was... I didn't want to go into it, but I do have a brain. Whereas Jill was very much more the hands-on. Don't get me wrong; we would be discussing things, and yeah. she had a she had her ideas, and I had mine. But I mean, we were brought on a guy, an Australian guy, who came and visited us and was blown away at what we were doing back in oh, probably ten years ago now. Yeah, probably about ten years, and he was the guy who said who started very much with the digital fundraising. He was self-taught, but he had been involved in sales and whatever, so he was a volunteer. Helping to push the whole... The, help. He yeah. started out the digital fundraising, which saw the gradual growth in business. So he was responsible a lot for the financial growth. Streamlining and making it much more easier for your, your people looking to sponsor as well. Yeah, making it, uh, it... But targeting, as I say, if you like, the the mass crowd. You know, we have lots of, I don't know, 30... 40,000 individual donors who are yeah. donating, you know, $25 a month, something like that, or whatever, every month. But that's your core, because those are the people, your regular donors is always what he preached, you know, regular donors are the backbone. It's all right getting a one-off big donation, but if you've got yeah. a lot of people donating, it can be $10, $15, $20, whatever, every month, that is your core donors, and these are the ones people that are the backbone of the organization mm. and these are the people you want these are the people he tries to work to attract and he's still with you now yeah or? yeah still and, to and where day. and he's in australia he, but he, yeah he's being able to do that remotely yeah. where do you see what are the what is the next major goal for soy dog foundation um do you have a, a like a, a a future milestone that you're working towards that you're that you would Look, you're able to share it's yeah i mean our a milestone, I mean, it's very much, as I said to you, you know, our, our mission and whatever, but certainly in terms of um, Thailand, it's ongoing. We're looking to expand and expand and increase the number of sterilizations we're doing. The moment, as I say, Bangkok is the focus, but also now the southern region. We've got teams now working in the adjacent provinces to Phuket. Want to move down to the south because you have got rabies situation near the Malaysian border. There's nobody doing much in that area. And again, I like to work in blocks, so I like to see, right, we're doing the greater Bangkok region. We're also supporting other people as well. We've got people, um, you know, we've got a project in Chiang Mai we're supporting. We've got, we're, we're supporting a project in Pattaya, um, Pattaya. And we've got, uh, so we are doing one or two others, where people are operating along our same guidelines as we do. We'll only support sterilization projects, not uh, shelters or whatever, because as I say, in terms of we have our own shelters. So but this like, is the goal. The stereotype. It's hypocritical, yeah. but the reality is, 
we're not going to invest in other people's shelters. Yeah. And we don't encourage people to start shelters if they can get you know, get temples to take. Would you start your would you start more shelters around Thailand? Or no, not not unless it's something became I mean, we built a huge shelter in uh, Buriram. Massive yeah. thing. It holds three and a half thousand dogs. But that was built we built it. It's actually on Department of Livestock land again, funny enough, but that was it was built we knew that when we did it. But that was built at the height of the dog meat trade because we had all these thousands of dogs that were being intercepted. They were going to drastically overcrowded livestock quarantine centres near the border, like places at Nakon, Phnom yeah. and Muktahan um, and whatever. And they couldn't cope with it. And these dogs were literally dying in droves from disease and, you know, we were supplying food and whatever. So we got, we literally, and again, CNN did a documentary on the one at Nakon Phnom, which is still available. You can see it, um, which is done on nationwide and, and this, American the TV. shelter is still open? It's there. Bahia? It's there. And it's controlled by but, you guys? But it's not, no longer, all the dog meat trade dogs that went there, yeah. we gradually got them out and they gradually got adopted. We still have some of them left okay. in Phuket that never got adopted and they probably for one reason or another, they weren't suitable, and so they've never been adopted, and they'll be with us. They're knocking on now. They're older dogs, of course, so they're with us the rest of their lives. What happened, though, sadly, was that, and you can never control that, although we had a verbal agreement that it would be used purely for dog meat trade dogs or potentially for future, it could be mothballed and used potential natural disasters, like the Bangkok floods or whatever. But it's still available if you needed to use it. it. Sadly, they did start to use it for dogs from from other areas, which were people were complaining about, so the livestock would pick dogs and shove them in there. I think even they've now, they're trying to cut it down. They don't want to be involved in dogs. The livestock department in Phuket don't want to be involved in dogs. You know, livestock, you see it by the name, but because there's no other organisation... They get lumbered, if you like, with managing the dog pound now. You know, the dog pound, they still, that was supposed to be going into the Aubourgeois control, but then they refuse to take it. Mm-hmm. So normally it comes under the governor who gives it to the livestock department to manage. But it's, you know, mm. it is a dog pound. It's not a shelter. You know, shelter gives the vision of it being a nice place for dogs. It isn't. It's, a, it's you know, a we dog, were We were banned pound. from there for a long time after... And recently, uh, because of, I think they, I say they used COVID as an excuse, we were banned again earlier yeah. this year. Uh, we've just had meetings with a new livestock chief has come on board. And we're Ban- back in banned there. in which sense? Not allowed in. Why? Because they said, oh, the excuse was it was changing from livestock to all bourgeois, which was not true. But nevertheless, they all then said, oh, COVID, it's too dangerous. We want to the staff but they were keeping wouldn't let anybody in volunteer volunteers as well there's a group of Thai volunteers who are going in to help so they just had the staff we know because we do head counts we vaccinate we you know people say oh don't you get any help from the government no either way around as with Buriram we still supply um, medic vaccines and things to Buriram we supply we vaccinate all the dogs in the dog pound we provide chicken treatment yep. you know Drugs and whatever. We have a vet goes there every week to treat dogs. They've allowed, you know, that we used to have them people going every every day to treat. We even employed somebody to go in there. But now, with them. the current situation, it's now not. Now they, they stopped going in. Yeah. Have you? Um, but we are back in now. I have to say, the governor has allowed that. We've now. Um, sorry, the new chief has allowed that limited access, but we can go. We can go in, and we can 
we've given revaccinated all the dogs, but we know two hundred have died there this this year, just from number counts from what how many were there when we mm. vaccinated them all because we counted them all. And we knew how much were there at the start of the year, so two, over two hundred have died in six months. So it's no paradise. Dogs, you know, they kill each other because you get so many again. There's too many dogs in one area. Yeah. Um, they die from all sorts of reasons. Um, this is a, a bit of a strange question, but I think it's something that might come up later. Uh, maybe not this year, maybe next year. And with the current situation, we try to avoid that word just because, I don't know if YouTube's going to ban, uh, they shadow ban your content or whatever. But with the current situation, um, have you had any thoughts in which it will come to the point in which you need to vaccinate the dogs because maybe they could spread the current situation or is this completely bollocks any talk of dogs being able to spread there are certain diseases which can spread from animals to humans they're known as zoonotic diseases okay and certain diseases can uh, there's one that's uh, obviously at the moment has been in the news a lot uh, to put it mildly which we won't name yeah um, there is absolutely no way a dog can spread that particular disease. Can they contract it? Well, there was a story of, I think, a case in Korea where uh, somebody had test, had somebody had the disease and they had it... Did the dog have a very, a very mild form of it? Uh, I think afterwards it was disproved. I heard later it was disproved. But, of course, whenever anybody comes up with anything like that, immediately the main thing is it gets on the, it gets on the news that it could, but it didn't. And I think scientists have been quite categorical about it. No, they can't. Same as, you know, you can't, a dog cannot spread um, flu. A dog can, you can pick up rabies from a dog, which is why we are working very hard. As Every dog we sterilise, we vaccinate. Phuket is the only officially recognised by the government province in Thailand that is recognised as being rabies-free. And that's because yeah. of... We've vaccinated all the dogs, basically. So why is that they, they could spread one type of... Now, rabies would be considered a virus? Yeah, it's just certain diseases are zoonotic, so they can spread from animals to humans, okay. and uh, or from certain types of animals to humans. And, for example, again, it's believed that one in... Uh, it's been in the media a lot lately. The bat. Has, you know... They don't know for sure how... It's rumoured that it could have started with bats, spread to another animal that's then spread to human. But nobody really knows for yeah, sure. See, that's why I kind of asked that question. Because yeah. if it, if it they, can spread from there, then why couldn't it spread from yeah. the dogs? And then that Well, exactly. And the reality is now, with the, what you're seeing with, for example, dogs and cats being domestic animals and in so many homes, you would have a large number of cases of dogs and cats now... Mm. Uh, ill with the same the same disease that the and owners you're, you're have, not and they don't. That at all. Not at all. No, no. not at all. And and there's been one case where it's say <clears> one case I'm aware of, where somebody is where they were talking about it potentially this dog having caught this disease, um, but then later it was said no, it's disproved. So it's like certain animals can spread certain things. I mean, you know, a dog can spread rabies to humans. It can spread it to certain other animals but not to all animals. Certain animals can catch rabies, some can't. It just depends on... The gen it's all down to genetics, I believe. Okay. But um, 
So a lot of diseases. I mean, dogs, the biggest disease in Thailand for dogs, the biggest killer is one called distemper. Um, and parvovirus is very common in puppies. We as humans cannot contact um, distemper or parvovirus. But I did see an article the other day turning uh, in Korea where they were talking about dogs, uh, some dogs had died from, uh, from measles. Okay. But that's impossible. Absolutely impossible. But measles and distemper, there is a connection between the two, but the two are different. But distemper, if you like, would be in the same family. But you cannot, you cannot get distemper and a dog cannot get measles. But they, they are loosely connected in the same family. Understand? Okay, so you haven't had anyone um, approach you to test the, the no. dogs no. with the, the fun swab or anything like no. that? No. Okay. No. I was interested to ask that. Um, I had one more question. It was more of a personal question. So I, I had a, a friend that had a dog and the dog was spayed. Yeah. And, but then every six months it still would get its period, I guess. Right now I read into that and I went online and tried to understand because there would be some blood and it would get on the couch and, and, and then the dog was a, it was normal. It's fine in the house, but when you take this and it was a soy dog that they found in Nyan. Now, when you walk this dog on a leash, it's a nightmare. You cannot walk it. We've tra- you've tried to train it. It's impossible. In the house, great dog, but on the leash, it wants to sniff everything. It does a little move where it wants to get off the leash, and once it's off, it's gone. So I was, we were trying to connect that to um, maybe what happened was when it was spayed, it was not spayed correctly, and that there's still some of the ovary inside, right. and this there's is two, what. There's two possibilities here. Right. One of them, I mean, an ultrasound, for example, take a dog to a vet would tell yeah. you straight away. There are some, there are some people who advocate, including some Thai vets, when you sterilize a dog, just remove the uterus, which is you know part of the female anatomy, where obviously yeah. the sperm travels up. So if that's gone, tied off, and whatever, a bit like a vasectomy in a, a man. So it's t- so um, the dog cannot get pregnant, but it's still got the ovaries, so yeah. it's still coming into season every six months. Okay. The other possibility is that, yeah, the vet who did it may have been a little bit inexperienced, and apparently you only need to leave a few cells. This is what I mean. And you could still come into season. It can be taken care of if the dog caused a problem. I mean, for example, uh, a vet certainly is a skilled. You could take it back to vet and they could reoperate on it and make sure any trace is removed. So that would stop it coming into season. Would that be recommended? Um, I don't know how old the dog is or whatever. Three, two or three. Well, I would say probably. Yeah. might be worth doing if it's a young dog. It's and would be... that help calm it down a bit as well? Uh, I'm not sure. Sh- well, it's unusual. Not necessarily a, a female dog to go scenting or whatever is not necessarily down to that because a female dog would certainly be, biologically, would get the impulse to mate yeah. when it's in season. But out of season, generally, she would, any, any male dog came near her, she'd probably go for it. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's only she, when they're in season that an animal will. And still in season, no, she doesn't do much. She's, no, and I mean generally, obviously, it's in season. Any, he, he keep her away from other dogs, not because of the risk of getting pregnant, but because there's a risk of, yeah. I mean, she's just going to get gangbang basically. Yeah. She was out on the street. Yeah, by all the dogs running. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so he could. I mean, I don't know where he's based, but I mean, potentially, if it's a, if the dog's got a tattoo in its ear, and um, he can look for that if he's got a tattoo because we always tattoo every dog we've okay. he's got a tattoo in both ears 
can be faint, but you can see it. And generally, if it's in the last two or three years, it should be quite clear on what it's... There'll be a number on it, and that will tell us where and when it was sterilised. If it's a sterilisation we've done, I can tell you straight away. And I'd have to speak to our Director yeah. of Animal Welfare if it's not. But if it isn't, then... Uh, I'd ask her advice as to whether, yeah, we could bring the dog in and we could, um, yeah, I was we just could, we could if, take uh, care of that sterilize, re-sterilize. I heard it, also it can be potentially bad for them in which when you haven't removed the ovaries completely and you've left again well, a couple cells, it could leave the tumors later. Well, in the it, there is one of the big issues in Thailand is sadly a lot of Thai people, they give, they can buy a, a, a pill off from the vet and it's a, it basically stops the dog coming into season. So it's like a contraceptive pill. Now, that same pill is banned virtually in every every Western country. It's totally banned. It's cheap, but it's banned. There is another one that's, I forget the names now, but it's it's quite expensive that is safe. You'd be amazed at how many dogs we sterilise, who, who own dogs, because we sterilise any dog. We sterilise own dogs. It doesn't matter if the person, yeah, we ask, we'd like to give a donation, great. But it doesn't matter... We will sterilise any dog because we know perfectly well that most of these dogs are going out on the streets and they're going to get uh, mated and then they'll have puppies and, yep. and they'll probably end up being dumped or whatever anyway. So we sterilise any dog, owned or straight. The number of owned dogs we see that have um, pyrometra, which is a killer, and it's basically an infection of the womb, and that is down to those tablets. Okay. And that's why it's banned in most countries, but it's not banned in Thailand. And vets give them out to anybody, you know, left, right, and center. And people think, oh, they don't realize them. It's no. a one time pill? or No, it's every few months. Or okay. They'll take this pill. And pyometra is a killer. And yeah, by sterilizing a dog, you're far less likely, also, it does have benefits. You're far less likely for the dog to get cancer of the womb and this sort of thing. It's obviously, there's less chance of that happening. Dogs can still get cancer of other organs. Yeah. But it's the same with male dogs. You know, they're far less likely to, they're not going to get cancer. Testic, you know, dogs can get testicular cancer, same as humans can. And they're not going to get that once they're castrated. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, it, it actually does have benefits. And that's what, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But if he's that way, yeah, I mean, I have a lot to ask him to check for tattoo and he is a matter of interest. Mm. I'm not saying... We had the odd case, where, particularly where we've had an inexperienced vet and we've had the ones come back where we know, you know, oh, the dog's the dog that's gone overseas, um, being adopted, and it's coming into season. That's the issue, is that the vet misses only... A little bit. Tiny little bit, it can do it. But that can be taken care of post-operation. Obviously, it's not advantageous. You don't be putting a dog through surgery unnecessarily. Yeah. But yeah, if it's causing an issue, whether that dog will sniff any less, his behavior yeah, it was going to change it, I would if, think if, unlikely. If it could cause like tumors down the road and if it's safer to do it or not to do it, what are, what makes more sense? Yeah. There are far more benefits for male dogs. A male dog, I mean, people don't realize this. I mean, one of the reasons we focus our sterilization efforts on in the streets is on always female dogs first. If we see a male and a female and we know they are not going to be picked up, we've got to dart them. And when you dart one, boom, they're, up, they're both off. Our dog catchers are told, if you can see they are, they're a male and a female, you go for the female. Yeah. Because you never get every dog. Because there's always going to be some up in the jungle that you're never going to get. And they come down, you know, for food, 
whatever, and they can see a female, they'll mate it. You only need one male dog, and they have phenomenal scent, as you know, dogs. I mean, and they can scent a dog in the right, with the wind in the right direction, that's in heat up to 10 kilometres away, they say. So, and they are drawn to that dog. So the dog will roam. If he smells dog bitches in heat, they will roam. Um, in terms of, uh, once a dog is castrated, they work, it takes time for their, obviously, their testosterone and things to come down. But once it's gone down, they're far less likely to be wandering. A lot of tires think, oh, they're not going to be as good with guard dogs. Totally the opposite. The reality is they're not going to wander. Therefore, they're, going to be, they're still going to be just as protective of the, of the home as they were before. They'll actually be better guard dog because they're not going to be wandering off on the streets, potentially causing accidents. Don't they become more uh, relaxed? Um, maybe they lose a little pep in their step from pr- before they were neutered? I think it depends on the dog. I've heard, of case, I've heard of cases like that, but believe you me, I mean, we've got uh, what hundreds and hundreds of resident dogs, all cast- you know, the males are yeah. all castrated, and they're all different personalities. You've got dogs are all different personalities. You've got placid dogs, male dogs, whatever. I've got, you know, my dogs at home, I've got placid ones. The most, are, generally speaking, female dogs are even castrated or non-castrated. Female dogs tend to be more aggressive, in my opinion. Well, they become the alphas, right? Yeah, than the than yeah. the male dogs. And generally, male dogs are more relaxed. When there's a bitch in season or whatever, yeah, they can become very territorial and aggressive. But generally speaking, you're always going to get, this up, you know, it depends how a dog is brought up. I mean, there's, you know, there's fighting dogs. You know, we know for, there are dogs raised here for dog fighting. Yeah. You know, and... If any of those don't make their grade and are dumped, nevertheless, they've been raised for fighting. Does Pitbulls. this still exist in, in yeah. Thailand? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's all to do with gambling. Yeah. Pit bulls, yeah, you'll... Um, How underground is that? Are you, oh, very underground. It's like illegal. It's, it's not... This would exist in Phuket or it's more the big cities like Bangkok? We knew of cases in Phuket. And we know, again, of dogs being pulled off out of temples off the street to be used as bait dogs to generate, you know, to be ripped to pieces by the fighting dogs to generate to build up the aggression as part of the and training. This, this is, do you get these dogs that come in for help? And you see this happening in Phuket? Yeah, um, we see, I mean, don't be wrong, we see pit bulls that have obviously dumped on the street that have been used in fighting. It's not about, you know, their ears are cropped and they've got scars on them and whatever. So I think they've passed the fighting stage and they've maybe the owners watch just dump. But how do you crack down on that? Cause Very if difficult. It, because if it's again, so it's, underground. It's, it's, it's underground. And who's to say that you know, I mean, you've seen cases recently in terms of in Phuket where there was a gambling casino going on and sadly the head of police has been suspended and whatever. So, you know, who's involved in it? Yeah. And it is always a problem in terms of corruption in Thailand, yeah. sadly. And we've had, we've been told about cases. And again, um, trying to watch or observe these things is very difficult. Is it? Yeah. It does, it goes on. Same as it does in, still goes on in uh, North America, and it's illegal in North yeah. America. Yeah. It's illegal in the UK. Does that mean it's stopped? No, it doesn't. It still goes on, but it's done very secretly, and it's same here. Yeah, yeah, and I don't. Maybe that's something we don't dive too far into, so no. we don't end up with a bullet in the back of it. I'm joking. All right, I think we we covered a lot today. Um, I had my; those were kind of my own personal questions at the end. Um, on that note, 
And everything and every anything that you want to plug in terms of your your website, uh, your Instagram, uh, any type of social stuff or what you're doing next, take it away. That camera right there. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, all I'd say is, yeah, like I said earlier, we're we're always in need of donations. So if you want, if you feel you want to donate, because uh, literally what I said, we can only do as much as the donations we receive, and there's. The reality is there's never enough donations to what we would like to be doing. I'm not going to, you know, you'll find us easily on Facebook, but in terms of seeing what we do, just go to www.soydog.org, short for organisation. So that's www.soydog.org. Personal plug, you will see um, on the website, actually, on our merchandise, I wrote a book... uh, a biography about Jill. Recently, I'm not trying to brag here, but it just it won um, an award in the UK. It won the National Reader's Choice Award for non-fiction. Um, it, it's not available directly in Thailand. It is on Amazon, certainly Amazon UK it's on. And you can buy it directly on our website, including post and packing. And it tells a lot the story of Soy Dog, but particularly it's about Jill and her life and her background. Hence the book is called Just Jill. And I wrote it, it took about a year to write it. It's written as a tribute um, to her. Yeah, a lasting tribute to her. So that's about it. But any of you do support us, thank you very much for your support. I say we couldn't do it without you. And um, if you see a dog that's in trouble or uh, hasn't been sterilised, our helpline again is on the website. I'm not going to read it out to you now, but it's there. We do have in emergencies. We do true emergencies. We do have a 24-hour helpline, but if it, you know, unless that is literally, if it's a night, middle of the night, please, unless a dog is being hit by a car and is dying, you know, if it's got you see it with skin problems, you're coming back from the pub and you see a dog with skin problems, please wait until office hours before yeah. you call us in. Um, but normally speaking, yeah, we, we we will respond, and particularly for dogs in who are uh, stray dogs or cats in need of medical care and who are not sterilised. Um, yeah, we will always come and sterilise them. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to watch the full video on YouTube, come visit our channel, Fruiting Body Podcast. We can also be found on Instagram at Fruiting Body Podcast. Please be sure to share and follow this podcast with friends and family. Thank you very much.